we are at like peak central banking at the moment. Uh, I mean, the only thing more peak would be a nationalization of the entire system and no other bank, you know, full CBDCs, central banks basically controlling all the retail money. You know, did you spend too much on alcohol this week? Did you not? Did you, did you reach your quota of spending this week in general? Hello there. How are you all doing? It's Friday. I'm in Bedford I'm with my boy Danny. We're just preparing for our live event this evening. Cannot wait to see all the people who are coming. And also tomorrow, Rail Bedford, we will be getting awarded the title winning trophy. It's going to be an amazing weekend. Hope to see a lot of you here. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got Matthew Mazinski back. This is a history lesson in money and banking, and I absolutely loved it. I'm here for it. But we did also get into the Russia-Ukraine conflict early on in the chat because it's highly relevant to Matthew. Happy to have those conversations. But the economics comes about half an hour after that. Now, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, you can jump into our Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. You lost weight. Uh, changed the diet a little bit and mostly it's the booze i think yeah. cutting out. i was telling danny that just uh mornings are more productive without it but it's, it's mostly it's a baby thing it's not uh so you don't want a whiskey you know i was gonna bring no but uh i was gonna bring you this latvian balsam shit that i brought last time and i, I remembered in the airport I'm like oh i gave him some last time i need to check first of all he's drank it i'm sure you haven't i don't think Do you we ever drank that are we recording now is yeah. this in yeah we're recording <laughs> okay did i tell you my uh the time I drank Latvian vodka. No. I ended up in Lithuania watching a basketball match. No, you did tell me this, yeah, actually, in, yeah. at Honey Badger. You did Fuck, tell me this. man. Uh, that, you, you ended up buying tickets, I think, to Eurobasket on accident or something? No. The, the, my Lithuanian neighbor who moved in, uh, who he bought them, mm-hmm. and I had no memory of the night. And then I woke up in the morning, and my ex-wife, my wife, at the t- well, fiancé at the time, said, oh, you agreed to go to Lithuania. To a basketball, and I was like, "Really? Let no. go and tell him anyway." And I literally, as I knock on the door, he said, "I got the tickets." I'm like, "Oh yay!" So two weeks later, I flew to Latvia, got picked up at uh, the airport, driven to Sholi, and we mm-hmm. went to a basketball match. Nice. And I got my I got my Letoiva Letoiva uh, uh, shirt upstairs. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I mean, like my wife is Lithuanian. Obviously, I'm Latvian American, so I have some uh, you know unique connections, I guess, to the Baltics and also to the U.S. But uh, like anytime we can promote the Baltics is good. They're uh, good people there. Well, so we have a lot of Lithuanians here. Whenever like, whenever I meet somebody and they're like, I'm like, where are you from? They're like, Lithuania. I'm like, Alabas. Oh, and they're like, what? <laughs> the fuck? How do you know that? It's yeah. the only word I don't know. It's some gross booze, though. The, both the Tris Devinis, which is the Lithuanian sort of spirit, the liquor, and uh, the Latvia's balsams, black balsams, which what? is a intimidating name but like you know the queen of england used to import it and really? oh, it's, it's something well, that's what they say i'm sure she took one bottle or something by charity but like <laughs> it's the worst it's the worst tasting thing it's like bad jägermeister it's like jägermeister that's uh not sweet at all tastes like bad cough syrup but you know this is this is their drink so they have to promote it it's funny well i didn't drink for the first 44 days of this year and then uh, and then i did it's danny's fault yeah. um, for me it's the baby oh uh, it's a baby yeah good, good on you well actually did I feel any, the only difference I felt is I didn't physically feel different, but I just got more shit done. Yeah. No mornings hangers. are easier. Mornings are easier. And then, um, but, and then I bought a bar. So I'm going to definitely have a drink again. But Good yesterday, you, this guy turns up and he's like, oh, I've got a gift for you. And it's like, burnt ends. I was like, 
And I tried it. I was like, I taste a little bit like scotch, but it's a bourbon. And I looked at it. It was a mix. It was a um, blend of rye and scotch, which is interesting. And then so... There's a really good restaurant in Singapore called Burnt Ends. I don't know if that's related, but... Uh, What's to do with the steak, right? Burnt, burnt Ends. That's what you had. You had a Burnt Ends burger, didn't you, recently? Yeah. It's yeah. like a bit of barbecue. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, brother, good to see you. Likewise. Good to be here. Um, we often talk about the same thing. Uh, we often talk about base money. Mm. Um and uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot been going on since I last saw you. <laughs> <laughs> In the banking world. Yeah, I do wonder, one, one time we're going to meet up and just go, yeah, everything's broken now. Yeah. Everything's fucked. Yeah. What, what are we going to talk? We can't talk about base money because it's just dead. Like, what are we going to talk about? Well, this is, why, this is why you focus on base money and you know, the, the, the system itself is too co-opted. It's too uh, centralized. And this is why it's important to make the distinction and why Bitcoin is base money. But uh, no, I was telling Danny, you know, on the train right up here, I was thinking, you know, it's Good Friday, Easter weekend. I'm totally interested in like pontificating in the, the big, the big uh, historical picture as well and where, where we've been going, um, you know, about banking and money and everything else, because obviously uh, things look bleak, but you know, I, I don't feel that way personally because of my holdings in Bitcoin, uh, my, you know, my show talking about this stuff is I try to marry, you know, some of the historical banking things with Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is a better money. It's a better base money. It can be better for the banking system. So I feel pretty good about all of that. It's just, you know, in the interim, of course, everybody is always curious and wondering how that's going to shake out. And yeah, you don't want there to be like, you know, blood in the streets and pandemonium. You know, I, I certainly don't want that. I think there are some Bitcoiners that maybe do want that as far as the revolution coming quick and fast and you know, crazy. Well, I don't. Um, and listen, I've done everything I can to tell everyone I know, warn them about the risks of yeah. uh, the traditional banking system and the decisions our governments and central banks are making. I've told friends till they're blue in the face, no one will listen. Some people listen, but a lot won't. Um, yeah. But on a personal level, I am comfortable in that I have Bitcoin, I have my protection. Uh, I've been in long enough now that I have that security of a, of a full cycle, which is some nice personal security to have. I feel a lot more comfortable if uh, the accusations of choke point two, uh, Operation Choke Point Two, didn't feel so real. Yeah. Um, I feel if these psychopaths want to destroy the banking system, fine, it's not good, but please leave my lifeboat alone. This is my choice yeah. as a as a human as a partly free man to be able to say, okay, I don't like what you've done there. I want to park some money here and protect myself. That now to be attacked to the point where you think, are you literally a psychopath trying to force me to use your broken, corrupt system? That is the one bit that just, that's frustrated me more than anything. Yeah, I think they are. But, you know, that's that's the history of banking right mm. there. You know, if, uh, followers of mine, listeners of mine as well, like they should know that I'm, you know, I'm always trying to promote the old uh, good system of free banking, I'm a big fan of that. Bitcoin can perfectly fit into that. But uh, I make no, uh, I, I'm not disillusioned into thinking that free banking itself has failed. I mean, we have a central bank in every country around the world or some monetary authority as they're called. Um, every nation is either using the dollar or captured by you know, some major currency. And that's like the history of, that's the history of money and banking, unfortunately. 
the systems that were free, and there are many, many. I mean, in every continent, you know, Iceland, Scotland, uh, Sweden, Canada, those are some of the more famous examples. But there were plenty of free systems, and they worked really well for hundreds of years. Uh, every time the government got involved, every time the central bank got involved, things kind of went to shit. And that's obviously the thing to be wary of. But at the same time, even though you can promote ideas of like freedom and free banking, and I was like looking at that history, which I think we can talk some more about today. Um, the central bank always does more in the name of stability, price stability, uh, in the name of uh, elasticity of the currency, being flexible for the currency. Uh, that's the same trope that they roll out again and again and again. And that, uh, that's the same exact thing that we're seeing right now. You know, we need more flexibility in the banking system. And again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an age old thing. Um, so even though I think that, like if you looked at, you know, Good Friday again, if you look at like the, the, the depths of Dante's Inferno, like the seventh circle of hell. Jesus. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's like legal tender laws and central banking. It's, it's uh, the legal tender being that they control the money, central banking, they control the credit. And those are the, those are the two things that even free banking, which has been really good in certain countries in the past, and we can talk about some examples because I always think they're interesting and enlightening, even though free banking really worked in the past, uh, it has always failed eventually because, you know, as Milton Friedman said, there's always an unholy alliance between the do-gooders on the one side and the special interests on the next, so on the other side. So some things fail, some things break, something happened. Obviously we need more regulation. We need something else. You know, and this is it, this is in any industry, as as we know. There's, you know, we can talk about schools, we can talk about guns, we can talk about whatever. But um, in banking, we have, we, you know, we are we are at like peak central banking at the moment. Uh, I mean, the only thing more peak would be a nationalization of the entire system, and no other bank, you know, full CBDCs, a banking app on your phone, central banks basically controlling all the retail money. You know, did you spend too much on alcohol this week? Did you not? Did you did you reach your quota of spending this week in general? You know, and and uh, that's the trajectory that it feels like we're heading. Yeah, on. yeah. But but again, th this is why we need Bitcoin. This is why I'm so optimistic about Bitcoin because it's an escape hatch, and I think it's more than an escape hatch. You know, like a lot of times in Bitcoin land, where you know we like to call ourselves classical liberals or libertarians or free market thinkers or voluntarists. But Bitcoin is definitely like you've had progressives, socialist Bitcoiners mm. on your show. I can't think of any example in libertarian thought or classical liberal thought that has had been more permeating through society than the invention of Bitcoin. Like it's, it's not just, it doesn't matter your political affiliation. It doesn't matter if you like free banking or if you think fractional reserve banking is evil, which it's not, but we can talk about that if you want. But yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't matter because Bitcoin has, has permeated through that, uh, you know, that's, I don't know, these, these stigmas in, in certain groups where like, I'm not gonna hang out with that group or I don't, you know, they don't have my values or this and that. Like Bitcoin is for everyone and it's based money and you should understand the difference. <laughs> well, so the, I, I find the rise of the progressive Bitcoin really interesting. Mm. Um, and we've had some on our show, we're seeing this uh, cohort building up um, and the range of issues they're discussing are really interesting, but I think their draw to Bitcoin it's probably similar to everyone else's, is that I think they also recognize 
that the political system is broken. Yeah. I think a lot of progressive I, progressive I speak to privately say the ultra-progressive left do not reflect them and the way they see the world, and it's become an embarrassment. Yet it's become weaponized by corporations, become weaponized by the government. And I think they are also seeing Bitcoin not so much just as a monetary option, a monetary option but also just seeing it as a... Uh, something to anchor to that breaks you away from peak centralization of everything. Yeah. And so drawing these uh, progressive Bitcoiners and these conservative Bitcoiners together and getting them around a table, they probably agree on a lot more than they think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they say this in politics, right? I mean, most people are middle of the road. Like at the end of the day, it's the middle of the road. It's the, it's the, it's the regular people that kind of can 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 point any election into one. And this is why you have, like typically in the US, for example, our famous two-party system where we go Democrat, then we go Republican, then we go back to Democrat. Like no one, of course, figures it out. But it's the people in the middle of the road that become disillusioned with the one party and then they go back and forth. But at least you, and Switzerland is very good at this as well. Switzerland is even better. You never let the hardliners take control. Um, it seems like there's maybe more <laughs> risk of that in certain times and places in the last couple of years maybe even in the U.S. in certain parts, but um, certainly never want to let the hardliners take control. I mean, we saw that in the 20th century. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I mean, where I'm from, as we said, the Baltics. Like, uh, you know, I mentioned it the last time I was on your show, the good old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Actually, I saw uh, Isabella Kaminska, who was a recent uh, guest. Yeah. I didn't know that she was in Poland uh, or, or did work in Poland. Yeah, we love her. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't actually know she was kind of moderate or, or like, pro to Bitcoin either. I, like, I haven't read her in a while, but back in the day, wasn't she not favorable to Bitcoin? We don't have to go on that. I mean, she, she possibly, um, but I think most people first discover yeah. are favorable, especially journalists. Yeah. Because yeah. you, 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 you can come at it with a little bit of cynicism and I mean, even Seder was. <laughs> He's now yeah. the biggest bull. Yeah. But she was pretty critical of Bitcoin in the past, definitely. Yeah. Um, but like her worldview, she's she's a Bitcoiner. Yeah. And I thought that was that was one of my favorite interviews we've done in ages. Yeah. Yeah. She's so smart, um, and her her understanding of history and how history repeats itself. Yeah. Um, which is is something I think is uh, super important for Bitcoiners because I think some people have this kind of worldview where they think they want it to go, but they haven't really looked at the historical context. Yeah. You know, I mean, those those who are claimed to be anarchists, I don't think, think really have had a look at the historical context when you have a breakdown in society and a collapse of government, what that actually means, especially for women in society. It usually means a lot of theft, rape, murder. Yeah. And that's not a world I want to... That's not that's not the Bitcoin world I want to head towards. So there's a high risk of that. She has a great uh, contextual understanding of uh, how governments collapse, revolutions happen, and, and it was great to talk to her about that. And I think she's mixed in well with the Bitcoin community. I actually have a really weird connection to it. It's so funny. When I was 22, I 23, this guy got in touch with me and said to me, "Do you want to? I heard you're into web design. Do you want to set up a business with me in London?" I did. Yeah. Then I met Isabella. That same guy is now her business partner. It's like this really weird connection. Nice. But um, no, I think she's great. I think well, more people like coming in, rational people like her, rational journalists who yeah. have good understanding of history coming into Bitcoin, I think are going to be a useful lens to progress us past this libertarian Bitcoin world. And I'm not against libertarianism. I think they've got great ideas. But this kind of like rational voice of how this fits into the current world, I think is useful. Yeah. And just to go back to the Poland point, and it's a point about Ukraine, and mm. we don't have to go too yep. deep into this. Your show, of course, you can 
we can continue on if you want or go back to the money topics. But, um, you know, like uh, she mentioned Poland on your show being a very uh, famous, uh, this was, this was a very unique part of Europe, which a lot of people don't know about. It's actually an extremely tolerant part of Europe. Uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was a Baltic. Uh, it was an elective type of a monarchy. They had a king, but like when the king was dead, the king was dead. It wasn't like a major hereditary thing. It was, they would elect the kings and also have to go on all this. But it was a very tolerant society. Uh, it included Poland, Lithuania, parts of Latvia, all of Belarus, and all of Ukraine. Not all the, the uh, eastern part of Ukraine was mostly not, which is where much of the war is today. Um, but that whole society was completely overlooked, I think, by like most people. We didn't even study it when, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, because a lot of the history is only now being uncovered because it was trapped behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, Poland, obviously, you know, Czechoslovakia, uh, the Baltics, everybody was behind the Iron Curtain there, so not, not a lot of the good history was coming out. And uh, people just didn't, didn't care as much. You know, you thought about the Western monarchs, you know, you thought about all that stuff, but... I do think that the, the stuff that's going on in Europe, like the borderline uh, fascist stuff that Russia is doing, Russia has deported over a million people. This is a fact from last year. I don't even know the latest statistic. They've deported over a million people, like hundreds of thousands of children to Russia at this moment, deported. It's genocide. Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it, it, that is actually in contravention of the... Contravenes, the, uh, contravenes the Geneva Convention. Yeah. It's one of the most important rules within the... It's genocide. Yeah. It's the same thing that my ancestors, ancestors dealt with. I have a family picture of, you know, it's like my second cousins, but there was like eight kids all deported uh, by the Soviets to Siberia. Some made it back, some died there. Um, there were two deportations, one in 1941, which was the most brutal. Uh, it was the end of the Soviet reign, the Nazis came in, and then the uh, Soviets came back, did another deportation, which wasn't as brutal. It was mostly just like hard labor, but the one in the early 1940s was very bad. It was bad for like the Polish intelligentsia. Of course, the Jews as well suffered horribly. But the point I just wanted to make about all this was like, you can very quickly slip into, into the extremes. And I think that people don't quite recognize how easily that is. And my part of the world saw the worst of it. I mean, the Holocaust was in Eastern Europe. All the camps were there. They did Hitler's Lebensraum. They didn't want to have camps in Germany where Germans you know, could see them. Like it's, it's dangerous stuff. And you know, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was the most tolerant uh, part of the world. You know, the UK uh, kicked Jews out, I think at some point, like 1200 or something, Spain, because of the, uh, they wanted them to be Catholic, they left. So a lot of Jews found themselves in Poland. This is a famous thing, it's not unknown, like thousands of years, 8,000 years, I should say, a thousand years Jews were in Poland. And living peacefully. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get one, some crazy fascist dictator who's in conjunction with another crazy fascist dictator, Stalin, uh, Hitler, obviously being the one that famously killed 6 million Jews, but Stalin killed more people in general. They come together, they start world war two. And like, this is where I, I just hate all of the Muscovite Russian history. They don't admit it. They never admitted any of the occupations in the Baltics. They never admitted taking over Poland as being something that was bad or cruel, but this goes back 200 years for us. So like for just very, we can finish this topic, but keep going, man. I'm good. Uh, for like 500 years, this Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is like an elected monarchy, they had rights. There's a historian I'm, I've been reading actually lately because I'm interested more in this, especially during the Ukraine stuff. His name's Robert Frost, not that Robert Frost. He, uh, he's even making the case. This goes back to what I was saying about 
the stuff being uncovered more recently. He's making the case that it was even kind of a republic, uh, what was going on here, where you had empires and kingdoms in Western Europe. This was a republic. You had people coming to the table voting, and you know you had local courts, everything. Uh, Jews as well. They had they had you know it was called the shtetl. It was uh, little Jewish towns where, unfortunately, they were still discriminated there where they couldn't own land, uh, like to farm, but they weren't farming people. They were more like bankers and uh, they were actually invited in to help with banking in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And, um, and so it's this very interesting history and, you know, peacefully lived there uh, for 500 years in the 20th century, a thousand years they were there, but the Commonwealth was 500 years. That's those two, two different dates. And then the, uh, you know, the 20th century happens and it just all goes to shit and, you know, just hysteria, people blaming different groups, not tolerant. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's a pattern there. Timothy Snyder, interestingly, he's like the best historian on this. He has a book, it's called Black Earth. He has another book called Bloodlands. It's incredibly depressing about this time. But um, in Black Earth, he makes the case that it was actually the destruction of the states that caused the Holocaust. So the destruction of the Baltic states, the destruction of the Polish state, like the actual nation itself lost its identity. And so, you know, that's why, you know, we couldn't stop it. We couldn't stop it anyway. We didn't have the guns and the tanks, but, um, you know, it was still mostly Germans that were taking, carrying it out. But you had, you know, you had local collaborators, you had Polish collaborators and stuff because, you know, this goes back. I'm even seeing just tragic things on Twitter from Ukrainians where in some of these lands that were occupied and another free, like in Kherson, in, uh, Kherson um, where there is like, you know, like a shopkeeper, his, he's got two kids in the basement, the Russians are <laughs> occupied the area upstairs and he has a grocery store and they tell him he has to need to grow, open the grocery store and feed for the, you know, provide for the soldiers and all this. And he's like, you know, I need someone to watch my kids. And they said, I'll shoot the kids if you don't do this. And, and it's just absolute terror. And I don't think he's a collaborator. He's someone who's clearly coerced. But, you know, these lines get gray and gray and gray. The more that you lose your sovereignty, you lose your property rights, you lose your identity. And uh, it's just a tragic, tragic history. And anyway, the reason I brought it up is uh, this has been going on for like 200 years in Eastern Europe. The, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth actually ended in 1800. Catherine the Great, she said, Poland uh, should be wiped off the face of the map. In 1800, she said this, 1795. Uh, Poland was actually divided up three times, Poland and Lithuania, up until, did I say 1795? 1795. And uh, the same exact thing was said by Hitler and Stalin in the 1940s. Said Poland, you know, it really wasn't a state. It didn't exist. They have no history. Uh, they said the same thing about the Baltics. Um, so, you know, this is like the serious, though. this is why, you know, it's interesting, my two interests, basically this Eastern European history and also money, they're kind of coming, they're all, you know, interesting things to study these days. We can get back to the money stuff, but as far as, you know, the crazy fascist dictatorial stuff, we've seen this story before. And uh, it's interesting what Timothy Snyder says. He says, when you have a full destruction of the state, that's what really, the nation, that's what laid the grounds for the Holocaust. When you say destruction of the nation, how do you mean? Like literally the same thing that Catherine the Great said. Like Catherine the Great said, no more Poland. The name of the name Poland should never be returned. The, the exact same words were like echoed by Hitler and Stalin. They said, 
you know, they took over the state completely. There's another thing, there's more points that he makes here. So like Estonian, Estonia was part of this. They were also uh, captured by the Soviets. Uh, there's three occupations for us. It was first the Nazis came in, Soviets took over a little uh, part of Eastern Europe. For, sorry, first the Nazis and the Soviets came and divided Poland. Poland fell in like a month, September 39. The Baltics, we fell a year later to the Soviets. Soviets came in first. Then Hitler double-crossed Stalin, Operation Barbarossa, which this is like the glory of, of Russia now. They say like, oh, we stopped Hitler. You, you teamed up with him to start World War II. They never admit this. Um, so then the Nazis were in the Baltics, carried out more Holocaust atrocities all over Eastern Europe at this time. This was during World War II, the four years. And then the Soviets came back, pushed Nazis out, took over all of Eastern Europe, and we took West, <laughs> we took West Germany, uh, the Allies, that is, you know, UK, France, and Britain. Uh, Germany was obviously totally destroyed. And this is another thing. Germany was, the German state was completely denazified. It literally was. And the ironic thing, remember what Putin said when he rolled in a year ago, he said they need to be denazified and demilitarized. He's speaking in the most psychological, uh, what's the term? Pertinent? Psychoanical. No, he's... Uh, He's in denial. He, like, this is the exact thing that needs to be happening to them. Uh, but that's, that's not what's happening. And um, uh, this is, goes to the Nazis actually had a hard time in Western Europe. Like, you know, they occupied France. They occupied Denmark, parts of Norway. Uh, they didn't really occupy Sweden. They managed to stay neutral. But there's a story, which uh, Timothy Snyder also says this as well. 99% uh, of Jews died in Estonia, 99% of Jews survived in Denmark. And his main point is there is that, that there actually was due process for Jews there. You know, they had citizenship, they had rights, and it was still like a normal country. We didn't have a normal country. We were neutral, we weren't allied with, same with Poland. You know, the Baltics and Poland, we suffered the most, like besides the Jews, which suffered the most, obviously like 50% of their population. Poland lost 20% and we lost 15%. Like that, we were, absolutely the most desecrated countries. And there literally was no state. So that's what I mean when there's no mm. state, like 99% of Estonian, of Jews in Estonia murdered, gone. 99% of Jews in Denmark survived. So you mean, when you talk about state, you talk about infrastructure, yeah. institutions. Yeah. And he makes that point. Now again, like people are maybe listening to this show gonna think like, oh, you're defending the state. Uh, I'm just saying what I've read and this is how history has worked in the 20th century. You know, he also makes the point that actually diplomats, interestingly, got a lot of Jews out. Uh, the Japanese, no less, got a lot of Jews out of Lithuania on diplomatic cover. Well, so this is one of the interesting things where um, where I get confused or I, I, I feel challenged with libertarians in that uh, there is this desire for more freedom and... The, their ideas of more freedom is the reduction or perhaps even the removal of the state, but it is the establishment of the state and strong institutions which actually has brought more freedom to the world. It is those with uh, where there are weak institutions or uh, authoritarian states which have the less freedoms. And so you always risk, I think you always risk with weak institutions ended up with less freedom. We've seen that, see that in Turkey right now. We've yeah. seen it in many countries that have established strong democracies when institutions have been weak and you've had tyrannical leaders come in that you've had the destruction of freedoms. So the destruction of the institution risks giving wrong people more power 
that actually destroys freedoms. And that's what I always worry about. I'm not, it's not that I love this day or I, you know, I worship this day. I've got many, many reasons to be critical, especially here in the UK, but I can still go down to Downing Street and I can protest. Yeah. I have, I can write certain things. Yes, we have defamation laws, which aren't great in this country, but I can still write critical pieces, yeah. fact-based critical pieces. If I do that in Russia, or uh, Russia, you might end up with a bullet in the back of your head, or yeah. tortured or poisoned. If you criticize the state outside of Russia, you might have assassins fly, find you, and poison you. You might be on a plane and have a cup of tea and end up poisoned. So that I was always, the mo before uh, the Germans started the gas chambers. But the 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 shot to the base of the neck that was the Russian way to, yeah. to kill you. Yeah. So and, and uh, so, so then I find it. I, this is where I get the real challenge in with Bitcoin. It's like, I, look, I know there's plenty of reasons to be critical of the West, especially everything that's happened in Iraq. You know, we can't undo that. That was a huge black mark on our nations. Yeah, totally. But at the same time, it is very clear that Vladimir Putin is a psychopathic dictator who is happy to see the deaths and rape and murder across Ukraine and potentially other states. And the only support he has is from other dictators, such as Lukashenko in Belarus yeah. and uh, uh, Xi Jinping in China. Like, these are the axis of evil. And I just find it maddening where when we discuss these subjects from a Western liberal democracy, that people rationalize some reason for what Putin's doing. And this is, this was a war at a time. There was no need for war. Yeah, There was peace. Yes, there were some border disagreements, but at peace. And so I just find it absolutely maddening. And, yeah. and I look at these people and I think, we agree so much on money and then your entire worldview, I just see it differently. Yeah. And I, I realize that perhaps the audience that we might be talking to here on your show as well. And I, and I understand, I've, I've heard a lot of your battles as well that you've had with guests and even amongst your yourselves, like internally debates, which I understand completely. Uh, I don't think there's like an easy answer for that. And I have, I love talking about anarcho-capitalistic theory. Uh, I like David Friedman's writings about anarcho-capitalist history and societies. Like he's written a lot about medieval Iceland and places that had basically free markets and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, where we are in 2022, for, for like, for, I'm just saying for me personally, for us personally in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, it doesn't matter at all. All that matters is we stop the war in Russia and in Russia's war on Ukraine, and we stop uh, murdering, raping, and deporting children and Ukrainians. It is literally a playbook from World War II. There was more articles that just came out that that was, uh, they've seen documents of all this stuff. And, and again, when, when you know they literally thought they were gonna take it in three days, he was so misinformed. Uh, all the generals were coming in with their regal, like their, their parade gear as well, because they thought it was gonna be like three days and then they'd be doing parades. That's literally what they thought. They're so de delusional. And we're what, one year in now? More than. Yeah. And um, so it's absolute devastation. And for us, like these are the things we've been warning the West for 20 years. And I agree with you completely. This is another thing. People always say, what about us and what about baby Bush? I, this was the war of my time growing up in college, right? Like the, I was as anti-baby Bush and tricky Dick Cheney as you could be. I mean, this was, it was obvious that this, you know, I mean, there were Saudis that attacked the towers. We don't need to re rehash all this, but it was obvious. And, you know, we go into Afghanistan, we go into Iraq, just left Afghanistan, you know, Iraq, you know, there's, there's girls in school now, which is good. But I mean, like the, the, the point was not, you know, it was not good that we went in. Those were occupations. We only went in with Great Britain by our side, by the way, Tony mm -hmm. Blair, the prime minister of the United States. Who we, uh, I consider a war criminal. Yeah. That's a, 
That's uh, and he and he went against the consensus of the nation. Yeah. Uh, yes, he had political support within Parliament, but because uh, he was the Prime Minister of the United States. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we it's had a joke. I'm just waiting for your reaction there. Well, yeah, no, I, no, I understand your point, but I, I'm tr- I always try to remember there were I think there were three politicians who stood down. Claire Shaw, I'm pretty sure, stood down. I think Jack Straw might have stood down. There was another one. I could be wrong on Jack Straw, yeah. but for a politician to quit Parliament over that, yeah. even one is a huge, huge yeah. deal. We had the largest protest in the country over a million people protest in London against war. None of us wanted us to go into it. We all knew we were being lied to, yeah. but but they did it. But they did it, and it's happened. Yeah. It does. I you know I'm against that. We don't need to rehash that as some post-rationalization for what well, Putin's doing. They're both wrong. You should be on the, our side then, if we're talking about freedom in Europe, right? I mean, like, not repeating the mistakes of the 20th century. Like, hmm. be anti-baby Bush and be anti-daddy Putin. I mean, both are bad. Both are just degenerate. Like, you know, I mean, just the aw- most awful things about us, if you would believe that. Did you find them? Yeah. Uh, Claire Shaw. Yeah. Robin Cook, Andrew That's Wilkie, it. Dennis, I don't know how you say his surname, and Matthew Parrish. So there so were five. five um, them, yeah. Robin Cook was the one, the other one I couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I find it frustrating. Um, I find it really demoralizing yeah. at times. But it, quite interestingly, we interviewed this guy, uh, Ahmed Gatnash. Gatnash, yeah. Um, so he runs a human rights organization that tries to push uh, for better human rights and uh, across the Middle East, and he was connected to Jamal Khashoggi mm. because they were working on Arabic Twitter, which is uh, plagued with propaganda uh, using specific technologies that have come out of Israel. Ironically, uh, governments such as Saudi uh, plague and disseminate so much propaganda amongst Arabic Twitter, it's become almost useless. And so they were working with Twitter to try and yeah, try and make it a little bit more useful. But he was connected to that. But he spent a lot of time just explaining the volume of propaganda that's di- uh, distributed on social media channels from these nation states. And I can only assume, as I have probably been captured by certain propaganda at times, that these people are being captured by uh, propaganda that's coming out of Russia. Yeah. That's all I can assume. They, they've, they've built an anti-West position because you know, the amount of freedom they have in their country is not enough. They want more or because of the mistakes that Baby Bush or Clinton or Obama or whoever's made. They've just become anti their own nation, that they've become susceptible to Russian propaganda. Yeah. I, I, still, I still try to make the disclaimer, and I think you know we should always do this when we talk about governments that are out of control. Like It, it doesn't have to mean... The people. I think the people do get at some point, like happened in World War Two. You know, you didn't have to go to Eastern Europe if you were a German soldier, but they ended up going. Okay, so they did. So we need to analyze that. Jordan Peterson talks about that. We need to talk like it, it got out of control. Right, it did, which is horrible for for us. And it's still Ukraine is still suffering from that. Was again my original point why I brought Poland and uh, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth in because this were generally a prosperous part of Europe that was free for five hundred years. But anyway. Um, what was my second point with that? Maybe come, I'll come back to it, but I had a, a, a follow up to that. <laughs> Should we talk about money? Yeah. Uh, no, well let's, let's stick with, uh, this just one second because I wanted to, uh, Please do. 
I know. Look, I know how important it's to you because this, yeah. this is the other thing is that uh, I've I see all. These. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Cool. Okay, so I, I generally make the disclaimer: like I'm not talking about Russians, I'm not talking about Germans. I'm talking about Washington, Berlin, and Moscow. Okay, yes. it's clear that that the, you know now Beijing has entered the, the fray and is here to stay. It's clear, like you know. You know the, you know, there are no communists in North Korea. There's just people that are trapped, you know, good people that are trapped by a tyrannical dictator. This is clear. We should all understand this, like not talk around it, not beat around the bush, not act like it's not real. Uh, the tyrannical policies come from the top. We should remember that, absolutely. And we are fallible, like we have done this in the West. You know, we did it with Iraq and Afghanistan, as we just said, but it's just clear that this is what they're doing. They're trying to destroy a state, genocide, um, and, you know, we're, we're not gonna stop fighting. If anything, I'm more encouraged over the last year, actually, because of, number one, Ukrainians' resolve, their individual resolve and their collective resolve is incredible. Uh, number two, Finland just got into NATO. So here's this old argument, it was all NATO's fault. I'm, I'm waiting for the Russian tanks to line up on the Finnish border of a thousand plus kilometers with Russia. I'm waiting, dear Putin sympathizer. Please, let's, let's see now. If it was all about NATO, Finland, the, the largest reserve army in Europe, 500,000 plus people, because they know their neighbor. I'm waiting for the Russian tanks to just line up along Finland's border because it's all about NATO, isn't it? Um, it's not about NATO, obviously. It's about Ukraine no, and but, a dictatorial asshole. But anyway. No, but I think you make a really good point. The distinction between the people and the, yeah. the you know, and uh, Moscow and the capital, London, the Berlin. Capital. Yeah, the capital. I think you make a really important uh, distinction. Uh, I find the whole thing, the whole thing is so depressing. But then, then there's the flip side where, I feel really conflicted with, I see a lot of Americans criticizing, mainly on the conservative right, but critical of the uh, support, the military support, financial support that's been given to I can, Ukraine. I can speak to that if you want. Well, just but, my, yeah. only, my only historical context is, is that it's no different to me than the support that America gave the UK in the um, in Second World War. Yeah. And I, we would never be critical of that. Yeah, I would, I would say, uh, surely this is more of a European problem, and I don't doubt that, I don't deny that, and everybody should understand that. Uh, we Eastern Europeans have always said that. We also need help. I mean, like I said, our states got destroyed, our nations, our identities got destroyed, and no one helped us. I said this on your last show, you might not remember, the, uh, the US has had an unbroken relationship with the Baltics uh, for 100 plus years now. And how could that be if we were occupied by the Soviet Union and part of the Soviet Union, not an independent country? How could that be that our flags were flying in Washington? It's because they never recognized the occupation of the Soviet Union, something that Russia, Moscow has never admitted that they occupied us. So uh, look, there, there are times when the West needs to step in and help. I wish they helped more. You know, my ancestors, I wish they had helped us more. They didn't. They chose to stop. You know, Churchill actually had a, uh, it's called Operation Unthinkable, by the way. It was to go in to Moscow after after uh, the Nazis were taken out. He he had a plan. I'm not saying he should do it. I'm not saying like whatever. I'm just saying it's interesting that he had planned that way. But uh, look, they were tyrants. They knew that they were just horrible, you know, awful tyrants. Um, but we forget, you know, life moves on. You need to trade. You need to start things up again. And and we were, you know, my, uh, you know, my relatives in Latvia, like 
say the ones that grew up in the 50s and the 60s, this is something we should never want for our children. They were worse off than their parents, you know? And this was all because we got swept under the rug of communist totalitarian Moscow. And that's, that's just sad. You've seen those pictures. They've, they've been going around Twitter, I'm sure. They're primarily Germans, but there's also conservative Americans during World War II say, let Hitler do what, you know, let Germans make their own decisions, no war, let's stay out. You've seen those. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that was a good idea that we- Of course not. Yeah, so, that, but again, I will, I, I do submit this, as, I don't know, like Olive Branch, whatever, like I, I'm not telling Americans to like come over and start nuclear war, not at all. And by the way, no one is talking about an, <laughs> attacking Moscow, never have we ever said that. We're just, we know who our, our enemy is. We know that they haven't had a democratic leader ever in a thousand years, except for maybe nine years between 1991 and 2000 with drunken Boris Yeltsin, yeah. who was hilarious, but tragic at the same time. I, I know that, I know that this is a European problem. If, if the Texas libertarians wanna get the US out of NATO, go for it. I have no qualms with that idea at all. I'm not for, you know, some, I don't know, woke liberal, like, I, I don't know, transgender NATO, like <laughs> taking over the world. I mean, it should be obvious this is not what, what we're talking about here. We're talking about base, base values, human rights, freedom. One of, the one of the interesting points that came up, it, I think it came up on Joe Rogan's show, was a discussion about how it's uh, this kind of whole, fl I think when he had Michael Malice on, they were discussing how it's flipped, that it was the, uh, the neocons mm. uh, in Iraq, and now it's the... Uh, now it's the Democrats who yeah. are, uh, you know, get involved in a new forever war. That's yeah. the, and I, I think they missed an important distinction in that the uh, war in Iraq was a, a, an attack. Yeah. It was a, um, uh, wasn't a defensive move. This was an offensive move into two countries. Afghanistan, they assert, you know, following 9-11, it's unsurprising yeah. that happened, but Iraq was an offensive, unnecessary move. The The difference here is that uh, Ukraine is a defensive support, it's a defense of a nation that's being attacked. And that's very much within the wheelhouse of how a progressive thinks. If you read The Righteous Mind by um, uh, Jonathan Haidt, he mm. talks about the care-harm side. This is why progressives are for so much equality and fairness, because they that's what they care about, it's the care-harm. Yeah. And so it's only natural that they want to defend uh, a nation that's being attacked. Mm. So I, just, I think they missed... What the, it, it isn't to me as a flip. It is right within the wheelhouse of how these people think. Yeah, and I would I would look at it a little bit from the side of Switzerland, who has always adhered more to the U.S. Constitution than the United States. I don't mean literally; I mean figuratively. That they were they were designed after the U.S. Constitution. Uh, size does matter. There's a great book. Uh, I just mentioned it on Marty's show, and I always forget the name. It's Donald Livingston is the author, Rethinking the American Union, or something like this. And of course, it's more about you know the federal, real federalism and everything. And uh, size matters, uh, you know, the, the disastrous capital idea of the Hunger Games can be such a thing when you have just the capital so far away from the people. Size does matter. If you measured the capital of the, the representatives in the United States, original colonies versus the representatives today and try to standardize it, you could go either way. You'd either need thousands more representatives today, or if you looked at back then compared to the representatives now, like five states would have zero representatives. You could go either way looking at that. So size matters. Uh, my, my point, again, following up on your point is, I think Switzerland is a very good model of not letting the extremes get out of control. And that's, that's always the case. I mean, the, 
the middle ground, middle of the road, people that understand basic human rights and liberty and want that, they want that for their children. They're never gonna want the one side or the other to get out of control. And Switzerland has always actually succeeded at that, always. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler, I'm not selling, we're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes privacy effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like you had to in Wasabi 1, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. Also, you get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously and Wasabi 2.0 makes this so much easier. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Do you know, I think uh, Matthew would have an amazing conversation with... Who's that? Natalie Smolensky. Yes. Do you know Natalie? I don't. She's been on our show twice. She actually wrote an article rethinking the American... The American dream, I think. The American dream or the American Republic. Um, She's been on our show twice. She's utterly brilliant. Somehow I need to get you two together. Yeah. You might maybe here in 2024. Um, I think she's going to be at the Miami conference. What was the rethinking there? Rethinking the American, the American Union, dream. maybe? Oh, I'm, oh, sorry. What? 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 You? Yeah. The one I'm talking about was Donald. Oh no! Was it, was it the re, was it the refounding of the American Republic? I don't know. Let me check. I think it was the refounding of the American Republic. Well, I'll find the article and I'll send yep. it to you. I think I think you'll enjoy it. Sure. Um, she recognizes kind of uh, similar things, but she's utterly brilliant. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, you know, I mean. I do think. You, do you do this stuff covered, on your podcast? We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, I do uh, <laughs> these dailies, which which we wanted to talk about today. That I'm doing more on money. Uh, I'm trying. I, I do drop a lot of this in, as always. But I, I do think like the most interesting history is monetary history. It's yes. like that's where that's where you know everybody 
trends towards that's that's why the decisions are made around that and i think actually most historians don't even understand that you know they they don't um I wouldn't say the historians that I've quoted thus far, but a lot of people, you know, they just are completely blind to the power that money has to uh, either do good things or bad things. And um, like I'll give you two examples, uh, a little bit about the monetary history, right? So we had uh, the most famous, uh, hilarious scammer. He's a Scot. His name's John Law. Do you know who he is? Do you remember you know this name? John Why do Law. I know that? I so he's, he's very famous. He basically... Maybe you told me about him before. He maybe I might have. I, I can't remember. I talk, I've talked about him before. He's hilarious because he was a gambler. He was smart. He's from a family of goldsmiths and bankers. He's smart. The gambler. Uh, he actually lost a duel over a woman in the UK. Couldn't come back to the UK. Bounced around Europe. Eventually made his way to France. Fell in love with a royal. Eventually made friends with the regent at the time of Louis the... I don't know, 14th, 15th, something like this. This was early 1700s. Sounds like Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> yeah. His story is amazing. I would recommend, uh, uh, what's his name? Ah, bad on names this morning. From the Hoover Institution. Uh, he's also a Scot. He lives in the United States right now. I'll think of it at some point. Anyway, uh, his story about John Law. But lots of people written about him. He's, he's famous. Basically, he became the first central banker of France, making friends with the regent for, for King Louis, who was like the regent of... Orleans or something. And coincidentally, he also went to New Orleans. Uh, he had this Mississippi, you remember the Mississippi bubble, the Mississippi company? It's basically a completely paper-based fiction, paper money. Which again, you want to see, paper money's not bad. We can talk about this history as well, but it's bad when it's at the control of the state. So he was just making friends uh, in France. Very, this guy must've been like Bill Clinton times a billion. He was so suave that like he could just, I mean, he made his way into the Royal court of France and he became the first central banker. And so the rest of the bankers in France figured this out about him. They figured that he was a kind of a shyster and he started a bunch of paper money schemes and, and everything and, uh, and backed by the state and everything. And so they said, let's try to collect on this guy. And, and the way that free banking works, if you extend your credit too much, all right, paper credit, bills of exchange, checks, all this stuff, banknotes. Um, when this starts, this is the way banking works. This is a good topic to talk about. We'll, we'll get more into free banking as well. But when you start uh, getting too much paper out into other banks, all right, historically, the way that the market works is other bankers see that paper and they know their reserves. They know like what a prudent level of lending is. And again, this is why fractional reserve isn't bad in the free market. So what is it in the free market? What do free bankers do? They claim gold on that bank where they see all these checks and banknotes coming to their coffers. Like, I don't, I think they're just issuing way beyond their means. And so they go claim. The, there were five banks that tried to do this against John Law in France, early 1700s. The regent bailed him out. The, the, this, this is where he truly became like a central bank. Uh, in the middle of the day, the regent, so they, they, they thought that they would get him and they did, they did get him. But in the middle of the day, the regent sent like a boatload of gold to, their, to his bank, it was called Bank General, eventually like Banque Centrale or something. Um, in the middle of the day when everybody would see, sent a boatload of gold on crates into the bank to instill confidence, all right? Only in a, a state-like situation, a coercive government situation would this work. Compare this now to Scotland, free banking situation. Uh, Wait, why did they do that, first of all? To stop the run. To, to instill confidence. But in free banking, would they not want to let that fail? Exactly. 
this was not free banking, so it this didn't is the fail. Central state. So the state, the regent, the, the the guy that's actually like you know watching over King Louis, one of the King Louis, um, he's like, all right, we'll stop this. We'll help you out. Because again, I don't know. He's like law was sleeping with his cousin or something. I don't know, some royal, royal. He was such a suave guy. And so they bailed him out. Like in the middle of the day, a boatload of gold goes into his bank while all these other banks are trying to claim gold. And so they back off. And this is central banking as opposed, this is, this still exists to this day. Like SVB is the same story, yep. but you oppose, uh, contrast that story to free banking in Scotland, uh, same time. A little bit later, I think it was like 17, I don't know, late, late 1700s, there was this bank, it was called the Air Bank, A-Y-R, Air. My Scottish friend tells me it's not Air. I sound like a wanker if I say yeah. I, it's Air. Um, Air Bank, uh, they did the same thing. They failed spectacularly and Scotland had no central bank. They were a free banking society. And Adam Smith wrote about this, said it was a very good thing for them. And so other banks in Ayrshire around this, the, they, they, they saw, the, the notes come into their bank and they're like, this doesn't make sense. They wouldn't claim their gold. The bank failed spectacularly. And at that time there was no DNO officers insurance. There was no limited liability. It bankrupted everybody in the bank, sadly, but rightly so. And Scotland carried on. They had hundreds of years of free banking system. So that's, that's how the bank should work. So I'm a big fan of this history, by the way. Yeah. But then the people that are like, say, oh, well, it doesn't work, or, you know, 100% reserve banking is better, whatever, uh, which we can talk about. I fully admit that the, the free banks have failed. We, we, as I said at the beginning of the show, we, we now have uh, a central bank in every country. So that unfortunately, we can't, even if free banking could come back in one country and be great, there's always a risk that it could fail again. And we have more central banks controlling the money. This is why we need Bitcoin. Right, okay. But my view is a little bit different, I think, than most people in that, you know, they just want the whole, you know, everything to be on the blockchain, which by the way is what we didn't say during the scaling debate, shouldn't all be on the blockchain. But you know, all payments, everything should be on the blockchain. I don't, I don't care if it's on Lightning, banks, uh, Fediment, that's fiduciary media, by the way. And I'm getting a lot of topics. Yeah, yeah, we, we have got a lot of notes here. Jesus, okay, firstly, Danny, we need to read more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't read enough books. Jesus Christ, you saved me. It's like, it's like I get to read 10 books in about an hour with you. Okay, you say we don't have free banking, mm. but do we essentially have free banking with Bitcoin because when everyone's levered up with Bitcoin and there is a run, they fail, and there is no central bank that bails out any Bitcoin situation, whether it's BlockFi, FTX, Celsius, they've all failed. Because, I would say yes. So we do have free banking in Bitcoin. I would say yes for now. For now. And here's the interesting point. I have a different view as say like the Caitlin Long view of, of Custodia. I love Caitlin Long, by the way. She's yeah. been on my show. She's great. She should do it. Custodia, you know, they're in this fight. For those that don't know, they're in this fight. They're trying and she will pursue legal action. Like they've been denied a master account. They've been denied a monopolistic privileged banking license, which is another problem, by the way. This goes back to the central banking and legal tender that I mentioned before. But nonetheless, we know that she's a sorry, good actor. Sorry, what is a monopolistic? If you have a, monopoly means one thing and one yeah, thing yeah. only. It does not mean a big company, never did. In the days of Adam Smith, this is the real definition. A monopoly simply means a license from the state to operate. That's it. So hmm. John Law was protected with a license from the state to operate. You know, the Air Bank was not. Uh, that's it, a monopoly. And, and all banks are monopolies. Now you need a banking, banking charter. Of course, we have tons of regulations that are just disastrous for banking. So we have two meanings for monopoly now. 
Because this is a debate that the Austrians have been fighting for a long time. A good fight, right? Mises came up with this idea. He said there was never the idea of a natural monopoly, like some big company. Marx said this. He said that the, the fear was that there'd just be one country, one company ruling the world like this. This is why communism, this is why we can't have the market because there's be one company ruling the world. This was like one of his ideas. Um, that's the Marx and Marxian idea of monopoly. That's never the case. It's never been the case. Even like, look at, you can, you can even see in the US, there's a great historian of this. His name is Thomas Di Lorenzo. I recommend people. He's an Austrian, like his writings, Thomas Di Lorenzo. Uh, you can look at like the legislation, the anti-monopolistic legislation against IBM. Then you move on to Microsoft. Then you move on to Google. Then you move on to Amazon. There's always one company that's just going to fuck us, right? In, in the tech world. That's always the, the, the view. That's, it's somehow... It's like that. But we see that it never happens. And for people that make the case, oh, that's because we have antitrust legislation. No, that wasn't the case at all. You have to go back and look at the Rockefellers. I don't want to go to that story right now. But it's never the case that the government is actually saving you from monopoly or that there's some big company that's going to just screw you and somehow be so good and provide such services that you need that then he's going to screw you later and like price gouge or something like that's that's the that's the cartoon version is it, is it an excuse to tax them through some fine and and what sorry so for example the antitrust yeah. legislation which is sent or antitrust prosecutions are essentially prosecutions against monopolistic powers mm -hmm. which usually end up with these fines that are in billions yeah I never know where that money goes. I assume it's a tax. Yeah, and and, and it doesn't. It's it's all yeah. This is this is the deep state that we don't like. All that stuff. It's just nonsense. But the, Thomas De Lorenzo, I'm quoting him. He has this great story about the IBM. There was an IBM antitrust legislation. Of course, like IBM. Who would think of IBM now as being a problem? In the 80s, in the 70s, it was. They were like the main like took over the mainframe to the you know the biggest mainframe operators in the PC as well. They were a monopoly. There was like 10 year antitrust. Uh, legislation being brought against them by someone, I don't know if it was the government or whatever, people, consumers, I don't know, uh, class action, I don't know. But it was like 10 years of legislation. And then the judge died. And then the next judge just said, the hell with it. I, I can't review this. We're dropping the case. And they dropped the case. This is IBM, like famous IBM, uh, you know, like who would even care? Like you say it now, it's so laughable. They dropped the case. They didn't do anything. And, and is IBM going to kill us now with robots in 2023? No. I mean, again, we do, have, we, do, we do have AI. That's a, that's a whole other topic. But you always see these boogeymen in the markets and the government comes to save us, but it never does this way. And by the way, I know people are going to try to say, oh, you're being paradoxical when you're talking about war and military. Not at all. This is a completely different thing. Let's not mix those things. We're talking about inside the country, a market, free market, property rights, all the rest. Let's not go too deep on this show with those, those debates. But uh, yeah, when you're talking about fr freedom in the market, people competing freely, competitive uh, companies, all the rest, the, the myth of the monopoly is huge. So that was a longer tangent on monopoly. I no, think that's we to go on, good. But, but so, so we do essentially, I mean, I think we all agree that right now we kind of have free banking and Bitcoin because there's no bailout because you can't, you can't print the Bitcoin. Yeah. So if you don't have it, I mean, and I just don't see a scenario, even if the government held a bunch of Bitcoin, it was going to fail, it would release their Bitcoin to save the banking sector. I think they would let things fail. Yeah, um, which is interesting because they just sold a bunch. Yes, they did. Into the market. It's kind of weird that you would want to outlaw something and then sell it and then outlaw you after you sell it in. It's kind of weird. They still hold some anyway. Yeah. Some of that's my Bitcoin, by the way. Um, so 
so the, the story idea, I've heard it. So the idea of the um, of a hundred percent. Full reserve, Full reserve Well, 108%, I think, is what uh, Katie yeah, Mon wants. Yeah, we should revisit this. Yeah, so the reason I want to revisit it and visit, revisit the idea of fractional reserve banking, because a lot of Bitcoiners are against it, mm. one of the things that I've uh, had a slight concern with is the idea on a Bitcoinized world that we have a slowdown in credit. And with a slowdown in credit, see a massive slowdown in the economy, people are unable to start business, unable to afford homes. Yeah, how much do we need credit and how do we have the right constraints in credit? Okay. Um, my view on credit is it's generally fine in the free banking system. I don't try to be more aggressive than that towards free banking. So a lot of people like accuse me as well. It's like, oh, you're just, you're just blind to like the ways of the state. I don't think at all. Um, and I think I've given examples of that. But so the, the thing about credit is you can't stop people at any given point from interacting. Like we could have one Bitcoin, all right, between the three of us. I have one Bitcoin, I give you a loan, you have the same Bitcoin, you give Danny a loan, and then we go around to Emma and somewhere else. And like, you know, we have now four or five loans with the same Bitcoin. It's totally possible to have credit in a 100% full reserve banking system because you can make loans even outside of the banks. And even the church said this, you know, it's like, no matter what, you know, who were the biggest people that were against the charging of interest? It was the church. The caliphate uh, never had, never allowed it in the Muslim world mm. uh, ever for like 1500 years. Although I think they don't, they have interest in their banking world now. They don't have a clear definition. If you have, yeah. a, if you have any Muslim scholars, I'd be curious. I'd want to know what is the definition of usury in the Muslim world today? So they, they never allowed it. Because you have Muslim friendly mortgages. And I'm like, yeah. how, well, how have you done this? I don't it's, understand it's still it. alone. I think that they have interest. They just, they're just defining it very narrowly. Yeah. Uh, the church, the church as well. Th this, in my view, is the is the bad nature of trying to over control banking. The church did the same. The church, uh, the church didn't let go of allow interest until like 1600, and that was actually the Protestants were were part of that, uh, and the Anglican Church as well. Uh, the, I think one of the queens of England was the first one to actually allow say, okay, it's okay. It's okay to charge interest. Still no usury. And they tried to let go, but, but in the normal course of business, you can do interest. But the church was always uh, against the charging of interest. And by the way, it's not, I mentioned the Jews earlier in Poland had a great history of merchant banking in Europe and in Poland as well. They were invited in to Poland, Lithuania to help with banking because, you know, and we were like pagan people weren't really doing uh, much trade in banking earlier on. They were invited in to help, but it's not a, uh, this is another thing, like, it's, it's not uh, even stereotypical to say that Jews were involved in banking. Why were they? I just told you, the church forbade interest and the Muslims, I mean, they were out anyway, I think, dealing with the Jews. They also forbade interest. The Jews were the people that, thankfully, innovated banking and helped uh, the charging of interest in Europe. So it's totally another good thing. That's a little bit of a tangent. But um, anyway, back to Caitlin Long. I think we should, we should mm. talk about this point because this is... Uh, this is, this is an interesting one where this goes back to the idea of the narrow bank. Yep. This is, first of all, this argument has never been used against free bankers. Okay. A hundred percent reserve, fully reserved bank has never been illegal throughout history. Anybody could do it. Anybody could do it. And the most successful, I would argue hundred percent reserve bank, which is reserved in gold today is gold money. Uh, Jim Turk, you know, Peter Schiff is an investor in gold money. A lot of, you know, there, there's, there's the Roy Seabag's a great uh, luminary, I think, in the space. Um, 
you're more than welcome to have a 100% gold reserved account and gold money. But what's, what's the catch there? You got to pay. You got to pay. And a lot of people just don't want to pay. And that's okay. So then you start to you argue, that, oh, it's fraud. You know, people are lending out your money. You don't really know. That's actually never been the case in banking history. Never. Um, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Like 1500, 1500s banking. What do you think was more prevalent? Paper checks, paper banknotes, or coin? What was most prevalent as far as just transactions? I would have thought coin. Incorrect. Okay. Yep. It is checks, actually. The banknote, the banknote itself didn't even develop till around the time of John Law there, 1700s, 1800s. And mostly that was a monopolized, a monopolized instrument, wasn't much yep. of a free market instrument. But the check, the check was around for a thousand years. Um, so here's another thing that, just stop me, by the way, if I'm... Keep going, man. Okay. So, because this, this, this proves, this proves the, the point of... So, so the, the idea is that this is like the biggest myth of all time, is the allegory of the merchant banker trying to like pull the wool over the eyes of the... And I'm being facetious here. The middle class peasant that somehow has a gold florin coin, and he's really looking for a sacred vault to put his gold florin coin. You know what I mean? So it's like the the bankers—they're the tricksters. They're the ones that are going to loan out the money and let the, you trade with the paper. All right, but uh, that's a problem because there's so many dumb plebs, middle class peasants that have like apparently one gold coin or a couple gold coins and really need a vault. They really need a bank hold. You can maybe get a bit where I'm going there. First of all, that's an allegory that just never happened in banking history. Never. It's never been proven. Also, there's never been a gold exit scam of, uh, of gold merchant banking where like the gold is in the vault. People are trading the paper. All of a sudden, the gold's gone or someone ran away with it. Now, I'm sure you can find in banking history and like Medici's, like some Medici uh, banker ran away with a couple sacks of gold in the middle of the night, never returned to Italy. I'm you, sure. You can find it in crypto. Yeah, that's it. You can find it in crypto. So there's absolutely bad actors, 100%. But that's, it's a lot easier to, uh, to uh, run off with. easier a, to run off. Yeah, with a, with a seed phrase than yeah. it is to run off with yeah. a you know, boatload of gold. Yeah. So George, George Selgin's written a lot about this. He has a paper. It's called Those Dishonest Goldsmiths. Um, great paper. I would absolutely recommend it. He tackles this full on. But how do we know that this is a total myth and an allegory never happened in reality? First, paper wasn't invented. In, this always starts in Renaissance Italy, by the way. This is the story. It's Renaissance Italy. Uh, some dishonest goldsmiths are taking your gold, disingenuously lending it out, right? And then you're just trading the paper and that's it. And like, you know, again, you got to ask yourself, who is the one for, okay, so let's, prima facie, the check started 500 years before that. It started in uh, Iraq, actually. It was called the Sock. The Sock. Uh, I'm not a chess buff, but there, so that's, it's an Arabic word uh, in, in chess. It's a Persian word. I think it's Shakmat. It's the same, same type of word, interestingly. I know Persian and Arabic are a little bit different, but uh, the check started in Iraq. It's called the Sock. That was a, around a thousand years ago. And the Chinese started not maybe a check, something called the bill of exchange. It's basically a check between cities. We don't have to go too detailed on that, but it's, it's basically a merchant paper system. They started, started that almost 1500 years ago, like 600, 700 AD. The Chinese did that. Marco Polo brought that to Europe. So prima facie, 
this idea never happened. It wasn't that just like everybody needed a Scrooge McDuck gold vault to take their one ounce of gold coin and put it there because they were so... First of all, you got to ask, ask... Okay, so this is the next question just to debunk this. Who would need those types of services? Because it is true. Transporting gold is difficult. Transporting gold is dangerous. So who would need these types of fiduciary media services where you're going to start cha- changing checks, bills of exchange, and eventually banknotes? Well, the banks themselves. The banks themselves. Yeah. The merchants themselves. It's in the name. Merchant banking. It's the merchants themselves. In China, the coins were actually... They had a hole in the middle. And the coins, like, the, the merchants would run around with uh, the coins, like, on a string, and it became cumbersome. And these weren't even like gold coins, they were like copper coins. So they started that, the first thing. Uh, Genghis Khan's like grandson actually first monopolized that like 500 years later, but it started in the market, started in the market. Important to note, these were merchant, merchants in China, merchants in, in Iraq and uh, in the Muslim world, and also the Medici's, the Lombards, they kind of brought it up in, in, uh, in Europe, as well as, as the Jews. And it's not a crime. It's not a problem. Nobody's trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. They are precisely, it's the precisely the people that are supposedly ripping other people off that need it. They need to go, okay, hey, I got to make a payment to my relative or to my coworker or my supplier in Genoa. I'm in Florence. I don't want to send the gold. Let's start sending a check or what's called a bill of exchange. It's kind of like a check that doesn't need a bank. It's, it's not worth going into now, but they, they would send the paper back and forth. And so that's how you clear, that's, that's, that's the beauty of banking, I think it's interesting. And so this whole idea, which is unfortunately popular, uh, popularized by Murray Rothbard, um, is that it's fraudulent and it causes the business cycle. Nowadays, no Austrian worth their salt will even admit that it's fraudulent. They know that it's not fraudulent. Like we all sign, you know, it's like an iTunes agreement, right? Like you don't read it, you click, okay. It's the same with your bank agreement. This stuff has been legislated on for hundreds of years. There's no, it's very clear in your bank agreement. You are a creditor to the bank. They are a debtor to you. All right. There's no, there's no, there's no promise of a full reserve. It's nothing. So this goes back to the gold money thing. It goes back to Caitlin Long as well. If you want a full reserve, Bitcoin or gold or whatever, do it. I say, do it, do it. The deeper question, which I always point out to people is like, what is full reserve, fully reserved Bitcoin? It's, it's Bitcoin that you hold yourself. You validate on your node, you hold the keys, all the rest. That's fully reserved Bitcoin. So that's base money. That's why it's, it's most analogous to like the core of the system. If you want to start lending it out, if you want some yield, if you want staking, as they call it now, or just interest, that's what people have preferred over the years. And you see it in monopolized systems, but you even see it more in free banking systems. It's one of the things George talks about. So like in the Scottish system, there was like 1% gold in the vault to the, to the checks, the claims, the banker's deposits out, outstanding. 1%. People preferred, for all the reasons we know today, like even today, no one, I mean, no one wants coins in their pocket, but even bills, right? I mean, it's already taken over electronically, but even, even back then, it was the same reasons. Risky to transport, difficult to hold. Uh, I'd rather prefer bills in my pocket than some clunky coins that are also at risk of being lost or at theft. So anyway... That was a huge tangent, longer than I planned on free banking. I really <laughs> want to get back to Caitlin Long. This, so this is an yeah. interesting uh, thing now that never would have occurred before. It started with this idea, this narrow bank 
But I actually don't know who was behind that. It was a couple of years ago it came out before it came out. Yeah. It was called the Narrow Bank. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn wrote about it recently. Yeah. So um, they haven't been able to get a Fed account either, a master account either, basically. They, I think they might even have a banking charter. They got the monopoly, but they can't get the account. Uh, they wanted to do basically just keep their uh, customers' deposits on account with the Fed, not lend them out, and just take the Fed interest, which they've started to pay since 2008, very important point, and pay to depositors. So first point, as I hopefully just uh, described in a longer tangent than I planned, free, uh, or sorry, 100% reserve banks have never been illegal before then. And you can imagine if someone is like going through a bank run, these famous bank runs in the 1800s or something, what did they do immediately after they took their money up? They went to another bank. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like, it was always open for entrepreneurship. There, it's never been illegal. It is true though, and this is where I give a point to the full reservists, they're making this point, but you gotta, it's a little bit nuanced. Um, in the last 15 years, when the Fed allowed interest to be charged on reserves, they never, before it was like, all right, you'll have your reserve, that's your, that's right, you settle. It's the same thing with checks, by the way, you settle with uh, neighboring banks um, all the time, like every day, checks, whatever, you, you settle at, at, at the reserve account with the Fed. Uh, that's not a problem, right? But we're not gonna give you interest. Hold on, do you wanna bring yeah. him into the kitchen? You can come in, Obi. <coughs> hey, how's it going? Is this ready, Obi? Yeah. Obi, grab a seat, man. It's fine, do you know Matthew? Matthew Majinski. Hey. Oh, nice to meet you. Obi's a yeah. uh, man. Fetty I just mentioned Fetty Yeah, you, you just did. brought up Fetty Yeah, I brought up Fetty So it's All good right. for do sharing media. <laughs> and by the way, if you want a cup of tea, my dad makes a, we'll, we'll have a little break. It's my father. Nice to meet you. He makes an excellent cup of tea if you want one. All right, I would love one. Can we have a- I told my wife uh, we're definitely doing tea. English tea at some coffee. point. Coffee. Thank you. Um, coffee. Milk, sugar? Um, no milk. No milk. No sugar. Uh, milk is good. Just milk. Just milk. So you're a tea. T, 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 T,
Okay, unfortunately monopolized by the central bank. Uh, as I said, it's not good that the state monopolizes this stuff, but the bank reserve and fiat cash, the things that you actually think of, the notes and the coins, all the Federal Reserve only controls notes. Other central banks do notes and coins. They make up the monetary base. Okay, so I can look at it from the other side here where I have vault cash, it's basically nothing. The, the physical cash banks holding a vault. You barely see the line change. It's light blue there. It's a little bit, you can barely see it. And then what's called M0, or this is the rest of the physical cash that's in society. So this is the entire monetary base. It's basically the Fed's balance sheet. So you see that this exploded here, primarily the bank reserve portion in 2008. What was it? It was just a bailout, never good. This is the regent in France bailing out his buddies. It's, it's not the air bank freely letting a bank fail, you know, and you know, succeed or fail on their own bottom. And so it ran up when 2008 to about 2014? Yeah. Okay. So there's another thing too, is even though this is like digital money, ledger money, when it falls, this is not money being printed. Uh, Bitcoiners would always say the Federal Reserve just prints, prints, prints. It's actually not true. I'm not defending the Fed, but you do have to be a little so, bit more so what nuanced. So what is happening? Uh, well, right now, they're trying to control this uh, no, when COVID it's been, No, when it's being reduced. They're selling uh, securities, typically bonds, into the market. And then so the banks get the bonds back. Okay. And then they get the bank reserves from the bank and they destroy them. Okay. That's how it gets out of this, out of the money supply. But again, you didn't need a central bank for this. Like the banks in Scotland cleared with themselves. It was kind of a small country, so it was easy. Same with Sweden and Canada also. This is actually a small country. It was the same. Uh, but even the United States in the 1800s, we had a bank. It was called the Suffolk Bank. It acted like a central bank. So what is it? It's it's how you clear at the end of the day. And I think maybe an example will help. I don't know how much longer we have though. So as long as you want. As long as you want. Obi's about two hours early. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> so. Um, so clearing, this is actually relates to Fed now, by the way, a lot of people call Fed now a CBDC. It's not, it's just clearing a bank reserve, or it's not a bank reserves of, uh, yeah, a bank reserves faster. It's not, a, it's not a CBDC. But um, so let's imagine a check, good old fiduciary media, good old paper money, okay? Um, let's say I send you a check, whatever, give me two banks in England. Lloyd's and uh, now West. Bank Scotland. Lloyd's and Royal Bank, okay. <laughs> What did you say? I said uh, NatWest. I mean, that's a Scottish NatWest. bank. All right, so let's let's stick Probably with Probably based in the let's, UK. Yeah, let's stick with NatWest, actually. So Lloyd's and NatWest, all right? Uh, I'm, I'm Lloyd's, you're NatWest, I give you a check. It could take some days to clear. It used to take much longer. Now, it, it usually they can get it done in days, the clerks. I mean, you could do it on your phone and whatever. It's even faster, but at least in the US, I'm not sure if you can do it on your everything's, phone. Here. Yeah, everything's super quick now. Yeah, but do you still have checks in the UK, right? Actual paper checks? I mean, they exist. Yeah. Uh, I haven't written one yeah. myself in years. And actually, you know, interestingly, I, so I bank with um, Revolut, which is yeah. a branchless bank. Yeah. And I own shares in a company and I received my dividend as a check. And uh, I, I can't cash that check. I can't put it into the bank because Revolut don't have branches. They don't accept checks. They don't, you can't mail them to them. So they have no, mm. che they have no check service. Yeah. And it's probably better for them to keep it, keep that cost down. Yeah. So I had to um, actually then go back to the company and they had to issue, they had to put it through as a yeah, direct debit. Yeah. It's the same in Eastern Europe. <laughs> I'm 31 and I've never written a check. What? Yeah. You've never written a check? Never had to write a check. Wow. It's pretty wild because I'm, you know, I'm nine years older than you. And when I was in school uh, in the US, that was, I mean, that was like a daily thing. I'd take my check, 
wait in line at the bank, deposit my check. All right, 20 years ago. It's, it's an unbelievable thing to think about. But the US is still tied to checks. Like the Treasury, they send out their stimulus checks in check form. Uh, they're way so they tied to checks. So they were actual physical yeah, check? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, oh, yeah. You, you, it used to use it a lot for work, for business. So if you get an invoice in, you would you'd usually, uh, before you had online banking, it was my first business. Well, I mean, uh, there was online banking, but most of the time you'd be paying checks. Huh. Yeah. 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 So it's totally antiquated. Obviously, uh, the digital world, we don't need it. And with Bitcoin, we don't need it even more. But it's a good example to help you show how bank reserves work. So Lloyd's, NatWest, check, takes a couple of days. Now let's multiply this by a billion payments or whatever, or how much it goes. And also, let's say uh, I, I'm Lloyd's, right? Uh, I, Lloyd's has a lot of checks that are making their way into NatWest's coffers, into their tellers. Not in the UK. Let's, let's just imagine this is the US, whatever. It should be used the US Bank. Wells Fargo mm. and Bank of America. Let's keep with the NatWest. Uh, NatWest has a lot of checks going back into Lloyd's coffers. All right. Where do they clear those? They clear them at the central bank. But does the central bank care about, like, the, let's say it's a billion pounds, whatever. And let's say it's a billion pounds coming to you and a billion and one pounds coming to me. Does the central bank care about those two billion in total pounds? No, they'll care about the one pound difference. Yeah. And the one pound difference is this. Uh, okay. That's how they sort it. That's banking. That's clearing at the bank. They don't care about it. It, it clears on net. This is why banking exists in total. This is why the merchant bankers are doing it as well. They don't care about gross payments. Oh, hold on. So, so okay. So, if there's 50 banks, they've all mm. got money going between themselves. At the end, when they're clearing, the clearing is the balance held at the central bank. Yes. I've always up, up, wondered up. how that happened. I always yeah. wondered like, what physically happened at the end of the week, NatWest owed Lloyd's yeah. a billion, whatever. I wondered how did that billion get to them? Yeah. Because if no if no physical cash is going, it's not like they're coming up with a truck and saying, here's your billion. Yeah. How's that actually settling? Where That's, is, where is that so number? And it's really because the central bank controls the issuance of money, therefore controls the total amount of money, yeah. therefore they're really just adjusting between them. That's something I've never understood. And it's on a, it's a net thing. Did Think you know that, that, by the way? Uh, yes, I did. He always says that. <laughs> he always says that. But it's a net, this is important, this is why FedNow people don't understand, it's on the CBC again. I want to reiterate, not defending the central bank. Scotland did this, Canada did this, freely, freely, freely. Thanks, you, Dad. You don't, it's just... This was, again, their, their impetus. They tried to say, oh, we need to have less uh, discounts. That's another thing we didn't talk about, by the way. The discount rate. You know the etymology of this, the discount rate? Nope, tell me. All right. So this is like the base rate of the system. This is when the Federal Reserve, they have the discount rate. In the UK, they have it called, it's called bank rate. I believe it's the same analogous thing. Um, it's the base policy rate. Uh, it's what the bank will lend as a lender of last resorts. Lender of last, last resort rate to the banking system, so if you need it. Typically, I don't want them to need it. Uh, during the Great Depression, actually, I'll pull up, I got a picture of it. I got a picture of it, it's better. Uh, the Federal Reserve lent freely at the discount rate, uh, which they probably shouldn't have done, uh, and they, they never admitted, of course. Uh, so let's zoom in here. This is the Great Depression. This is 100 years of Fed history here, okay? This is the reserves in dark green. In light green, we have the total Fed balance sheet. Okay, so think of the reserves. Again, I don't have a whale here as the icon. I have a bank picture, but it's this moves interest rates more than anything in the system. It's the reserves. It's the, it's the core. Because the, the cash is not there. It's like in people's wallets, under a mattress. It's in grocery store tills. Cash doesn't do anything as far as leveraging the system. So anyway, look at this. This is the Great Depression of 1920-21 happened here when they conveniently 
raise interest rates. Then they dropped them, dropped them, dropped them very, very low here, uh, 3%. Then they raised them, raised them, raised them because inflation was running hot. Skyscraper index, uh, Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute has this. It's a great thing, obviously, that skyscraper index, like whenever there's a lot of skyscrapers being built in like record numbers, which was happening in Manhattan at the time, it's probably a problem. It was happening here, the stock market, everything. Irving Fisher, yeah. Can you explain the difference between the discount rate and the Fed's fund rate? Yes, yes, I can. So Irving Fisher, he said right here, nine days before the Great Depression, stocks have reached a permanently high plateau. You know how it typically goes in this story. And look at what the discount rate is. It's it's peaking again. And then they have to, I know I'm cognizant now we have, we have uh, listeners as well, but the discount rate is not at an all-time high. Again, the Fed is only around for 20 years here. It was an all-time high during the Great Depression, or the, the Great the Depression of 1920 to 21, it's called. Tom Woods actually made that famous. I don't think they even had a Wikipedia article before Tom Woods started talking about it. Uh, it uh, was at 7%, caused it. And then the Great Depression, they went up to 6%, caused it, and then fell. They'll never admit this. Although Ben Bernanke did say at Milton Friedman's 90th birthday, uh, we, we did exacerbate the Great Depression. We'll never do it again. And he's true to his word, by the way, because it's the same, same idea here. Bank reserves again exploding. It's the same picture. It's a Fed balance sheet. It's just on a weekly basis, a little bit different. But anyway, Danny, your question, uh, the discount rate. So precisely in this time, in the teens and the 20s, when the Federal Reserve, they always, George Selgin always jokes, it's like, oh, it's practice. Like they, they never take responsibility for the Great Depression, even though Ben Bernanke almost admitted as much to Milton Friedman, but they never officially take responsibility. Um, they say this is like practice period. You know, it's, it's, uh, they're just kind of figuring it out. You can see how small it is here and it explodes during World War II. It's like a couple hundred million, explodes over a billion, uh, six, seven billion uh, after, sorry, did I said World War II, World War I. The US entered World War I. Anyway, they were another bank. They were another bank that would clear, they would uh, discount, uh, not, not discount, they would actually clear checks, banknotes, everything at par. Um, I'll get into the deeper level of discount rate uh, in a second. But what the discount rate means right here is this is just the rate that they would lend to other banks. And it should be the lender of last resort rate. This is what Walter Badgett, English uh, editor of The Economist in the 1700s said, I think, late 1700s, um, maybe 1800s now, I, can, I think 1700s. This show is brought to you by Ledden. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledden demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. Now, if you're still holding your Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because as you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign a Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. 
I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same device I bought back then, and I absolutely love their products. Now, Ledger is running a promo right now. If you buy a Ledger Nano, you can get $30 back in Bitcoin, and this offer will be running until the 18th of April. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. Do you want to know something really interesting? Yeah. Danny's got a new fact-checking tool for live fact-checking. Chat GPT? Yeah. How does it work? Well, so previously you'd go to Google and you'd search, you would search yeah. for that. Like uh, the other day, I give but you an Does example. it work well? Brilliantly, apparently. Yeah. So the other day, uh, somebody referenced a chapter in a book. And so normally you go to Google and then you would hope it would find the book maybe mm. and that you can access it. This time you just asked Chat GPT and they said, yeah, this is the chapter, this is what it contained. I just said summarize chapter 27 in this book and it gave me a summary, which is nice. pretty amazing. Yeah. But it's like when it's. Finding a person on a date, it's just as easy to Google it. But sometimes when it's a, a more like obscure reference, I'll type in the reference and ask for a, um, a, a source and then just go to it that way. And it's quicker than going through Google. That's awesome. I should I should probably experiment. You've got, you got to experiment because, I mean, firstly, I just thought it's the latest thing. Yeah. You know, it's the guy who was uh, a blockchain expert, now an AI expert, mm. and it's just, it's actually super fucking useful. It, there's all the fun shit you can do, yeah. and then there's all the useful stuff. My brother's using it uh, on the show all the time. He gets uh, AI to do the translations, does all different kinds of stuff. Nice, yeah. nice. We, yeah. we, have a, we keep debating who's going to lose their job first. <laughs> That's what everybody's saying, right? All of us all at once. I think Danny yeah. survives longer, longer than me. <laughs> Uh, it would have been 1800s, I think. He died in 1877. Have okay, you seen Will Smith eating spaghetti? No. Oh my God. You've got to get it. You've got to do. Just sorry, this is a bit <laughs> uh, of a tangent. Search for yeah. AI Will Smith eating spaghetti. Oh, then you've got to watch this other thing. I'm going to send you a link. This entire thing was generated by AI. That second one down. Uh, watch this video. All right, it's not great, but this right is entirely AI generated. Oh my God. Yeah. Wait, this is, but I've just sent you a link on Telegram, Matthew. Pull this up. Oh, you, are you doing the rapper guy? Yeah, I'm, I've DM'd you on tw Twitter instead. And there, yeah. Popular song. Here's an example of him singing Day Night. So this is a Kanye AI voice. I started thinking, you know, what are the implications of this for the music industry? Now all you have to do is record reference vocals and replace it with a trained model of any musician you like, which is exactly what I do. I found this Kanye-style beat on YouTube. I wrote eight bars, and I'm going to record them now, and then I'm going to have AI Kanye 
replace me. I got a fantasy that's beautiful, that's dark and twisted, but I attacked the whole religion all because of my ignorance. What was I thinking? That was some bitch shit. I lost Adidas, but I'm so Yeezy. Back in the kitchen, man, I'm a genius. Boys in the hood, just like I'm easy. Kanye, Wheezy, Southside of Chicago, life ain't easy. All praise be to Lord Jesus, Donda, please rest easy. All right, let me cut it there. Let me cut it there. So let's hear those vocals I just recorded now with Kanye. Yeah. I got a fantasy that's beautiful, that's dark and twisted. But I attacked the whole wow. religion all because of my ignorance. What was I thinking? That was some bitch shit. I lost some Adidas, but I'm so easy. Back in the kitchen, man, I'm a genius. Boys in the hood, just like I'm easy. Kanye, Weezy, Southside of Chicago, life ain't easy. All praise be to Lord. This is why I'm not on Twitter as much as you. I just waste, I waste too much time. <laughs> Yo, that new Yeezy track goes hard. No, but obviously I know it's not a waste of time for you. Yeah, but doing uh, good work here, but that's crazy. Do you want to pause it? Yeah. So, I forget I'm driving. It's a bit of a tangent. A bit of a tangent. Um, oh, firstly, we're fucked. We're so absolutely fucked. Uh, um, but secondly, I just think it's, I mean, we're not even in the first innings yet with this AI stuff. You know, they're still in the dressing room just getting ready. Mm-hmm. big in the team and the stuff and the speed at which people are figuring stuff out now I think is yeah. crazy yeah. Yeah. and so every, everything's replaceable I, I can see a path where if there's eight people who work on this podcast where everyone's replaceable but I think it's your last because you need a coordinator I go first. I'm one of the first who goes. Or editing goes goes sales. Also, think how much we have of your voice to model it off. Yeah, we've got 640 episodes. I've seen those everywhere in the world. They're very convincing with Joe Rogan. And and those were even like early AI models too. They're doing better now. But yeah, there's one where he interviews the old Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Yeah, I have not seen that. Yeah, it's wild. So he like they've literally just created a whole interview between him, the two of them. So I'm replaceable. That's not. I think it's you and Austin, the partnerships guy, because he's got to get out there and sell the partnerships, and you as a coordinator. All right, Austin, let's talk. I could retire. <laughs> True. It's mad. It's mad. Yeah. Oh, fuck. So, what was that interview you watched? We're all dead in three years. Oh, yeah, on Bankless. Yeah. This AI guy, proper expert. Yeah. We're all dead. <laughs> but you know, they say that, it goes back a little bit to the monopolistic discussion, right? Like it's whether it's one company or one tech taking over. It doesn't seem to happen, but yeah, like I said, you never. You never know. You never know. Well, the argument now is, does this make us more productive as a society or or does the productivity not lead to... Uh, 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 so, so, put it a different way. So, we can eliminate jobs because we have AI able to do those things. Does that yeah. lead other people to go and be more productive so we have a higher GDP? Yeah. Or do we have a lot of wasted resource and then a lower GDP? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's... Good questions. Anyway, nice tangent. Good questions. Very nice tangent. Uh, It's good to have this. Totally discount up. No, yeah. So, so the discount rate is basically the lender of last resort rate. Um, That's what the Federal Reserve should have, uh, at least according to Badgett's theory. Walter Badgett from the 1800s, economist, late 1800s. Now, I'm sure of it. Um, The Economist, uh, you know, chief editor for like 20 years. Um, he, he kind of, he's not a fan of central banks either. And again, I'm not defending central banks, but he said, you should at least, you're supposed to lend for, he's, it's a famous thing that he says, lend freely as a lender of last resort at, on good collateral at penalty interest. 
That's what he says. Um, this was not what they were doing here. I know I'm not showing you any other market rates. I've done a, a daily on this. I'll show, I'll, I'll get you some commercial paper in the future. I'll put it on a show. Um, they were just lending like a normal bank. Many banks were just going to them like a normal bank and the Fed knew it was a problem. And by the way, the Great Depression happened during this period. So they never really admitted it. That's, uh, you can see it's this, it's, people know this pattern, right? Interest rates rise because inflation's running hot. The market collapses. They drop interest rates. Look at that. It was 7% discount. They dropped it to three in the roaring 20s. All right, skyscraper index exploding, stock market exploding. Irving Fisher, nine days before this happened, said stocks have reached a permanently high plateau. This is one of the founding econ economic wonks of like, we can control money supply and prices and all this stuff. And then you see what happens, so famous last words. So, so the, the interest rate the Fed pays? Yes. Is that based on the income they make by lending out to other banks? Like if they're paying an yeah, interest rate, no, no uh, the 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 payment rate, which you might have heard, um, I think Lynn Alden's pointed this out as well, uh, which is good. Like they, they've Ben Bernanke used to say they never lost a cent on their open market operations. They are losing money now, like in a big way. Yeah, because the interest rate that they're earning on their securities, right? Because they have assets, liabilities. This is the the total assets are in green. I'm not breaking it up, but just think bonds. Here it was more banks. They actually had bank loans that they were getting back in interest. But that's, that's, that's way different. The teens and 20s are way different than today. Here, it's government securities. They're right. getting uh, interest. lower interest rate. Now it's higher as it's been rising, but it has been so low, they've been getting low. And plus they're charging, uh, they're paying interest on reserves, which I mentioned before. They've only started doing that since the, the Great Depression, the, the financial, the, the GFC, the global financial crisis, the, the global financial crisis. They've only been doing that in the last 15 years. So they have interest coming in from their assets. Mm -hmm. They have interest going out that they pay banks, which they never did before. But now it's, it's they're negative on that. Which why, is, why did they not do it before? And why did they, did they do it now? Because that's never would have been the way that banking would have worked. I mean, banks, banks don't centralize and just keep things at the bank. The reason they did it the reason that this exploded here, this reserve, let's just take off the balance sheet. This is the key. This reserve, this reason this thing exploded, where banks go from literally having 20 billion. Look at, you can see the number mm -hmm. in the tooltip, 20, 30 billion. We don't even have to zoom in and see the tooltip. That's so small. And then just exploded to trillions, going to two and a half, three trillion. The reason that they did that was to bail out the bank's bad bets. But they knew that typically in banking, as it's always worked for the past prior years and all the time, again, free banks or unfree banks, it always works this way. You make money by going short uh, your depositors and going long loans. So you get money in from your depositors, all right? And you go long on loans. You lend, you lend uh, depositors money out. That's just how it works. You'll make the spread. As that golf saying, it's like lend it. I don't even remember now. It's like borrow at one, lend at two on the course by three or something. But it's it's higher than that typically. Typically it's four and five percent, which you would even have to borrow at. And then you lend at a little bit higher, something like that. You make a spread. I'm just throwing out numbers right there. It is true that the there's another point. The history of interest rates, Sidney Homer, it's a tome. He's studied interest rates for four thousand years. Never have interest rates been as low as they were here in World War II. They're at a half percent discount rate, I'm showing. And then the Fed funds will answer your question eventually. The Fed funds uh, gets up to over 20%. The discount rate gets to 14%. 
never, you'd have to go back to ancient Greece to find that even farther, like ancient Sumer, never been that high. And then now we know where they've been and we know the problem. So zero percent. They've gone in the last hundred years, the central bank, the premier uh, banking institution in the United States has gone to three extremes. Never, ever has happened in recorded history, except like 20 percent in ancient Greece, like Okay, and they and they increase their balance sheet to they increase their reserves to bail out the banks, but what is the makeup of that? Yeah, so the that's just that's literally cash. Like they're taking the bad securities. They bought these mortgage-backed securities, also treasuries. So the banks have treasuries always. They bank, but the treasury always issues bonds in the open market. The banks buy that stuff for like pension funds, head funds. That's just how banking works, right? There's a, it's always just leveraging up on credit. Like someone issues, like the treasury, banks buy it. They will take the uh, the interest from the treasury, pay a little bit less to their depositors. That's just how banking works. That's capital markets. And then it's, not from, a, it's not a crime. It's not a problem. And from 2014, they were paying it off. They were clearing it. They, they were tightening. Oh, tightening. tightening. Yes, yeah, yes, so yes. Tightening, but which is interesting. This is that QT, which is a bullshit term that they come up with. The same with QE. It was a bullshit term. Like This was QE1. You can see right here very clearly. Dear listener, it was like eight. 10 billion bank reserves, then it goes up to a trillion two years after the GFC, then it goes up to a trillion six, this is QE2, then it goes up to two seven, but their that's bank, QE3. Their bank reserves are essentially debt. It's that's it's a liability for the Fed, it's an asset for the banks. Yeah. That's how it works. But for but the again, Fed, it's kind of a could debt. Do this. Any, it, is a, it is exactly a debt, it's yeah. a liability. So you call it a federal reserve, but it's a federal debt. Yeah. 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 Okay. They held no gold. So, by the way, let's put the balance sheet back on. Uh, Reserves on the liability side. So, I'm taking that off because it's kind of confusing. I couldn't make these charts where they have liabilities on the bottom and assets on the top, but that's, I'll get there eventually. This is the total balance sheet, total assets. There's securities on the asset side. There's the money on the liability side. That's how it always works, by the way, in banking. So, remember what I said before debtor, you're a uh, depositor in the bank. The bank is a, debtor to you, you are a creditor of the bank. So you count up the liability. That means the bank has a liability to you. Your deposit represents a bank liability. So the one, the way you want to calculate money, fiduciary media in the economy is always counting up the liability side, interestingly. So this is what people say, like it's debt-based banking or whatever. Like this, it is. Money is always comes in the liability side first. Again, not a problem in the free market. If you fail, fail on your own bottom. But this has been centralized uh, for the last hundred years. Anyway, um, there was another question, even besides Danny's, that you had, and I'm well, not sure I so, answered. So, why does the Fed need to clear its reserves? Why did they do QT? You, you mean to de- oh to decrease it? Yeah. Can't they just well? Have they those say reserves yeah, they forever? could, they yeah. could, and they certainly are. I mean, look in the last. I think actually they just posted as of this morning. It's still down a little bit more, uh, but you can't actually see it when I'm zoomed in. But is it because the banks themselves need to clear their debt with the? The Fed. So there is that natural process. No, no, that has nothing to do with it. No. It's uh, it's up to their discretion. So this is so why, this is base money, QT? by the way. This is the this is the whether we say balance sheet or the reserves. I'm not showing the notes. The notes make up the vast majority of the difference here. There's some other things too. They have this reverse repo facility now, which is kind of for non banks. I've got another to, question on that as well coming yeah, up. Sure. But, but why but, do QT? I get QE to stimulate the economy, yeah. but why do QT if they, it risks? They say they economy? want to normalize the economy. They know it's not good and everything. Uh, the reason in any other system, you see how low this is. Look, they're yeah. not even at a trillion dollars by the GFC. Not even a trillion, $900 billion balance sheet. Now we're at trillions. They never got to nine. That must have been a voodoo number. So last year, they never got to nine. It was like eight, nine. Zero, eight, nine, two, eight, nine, one. They never got to nine trillion. Must have been a voodoo number. Then the Powell tried to cut it down. 
Uh, and by the way, he reversed 50% of that in the last three weeks. Yeah. So it's back to, back to money printing. Um, but anyway, the reason why we never had hyperinflation here is not a uh, interest rate I'm showing on this chart. Unfortunately, I'll, I'll do a daily on this soon. It's this interest on reserve. So what effectively that did is uncle Ben helicopter Ben said, okay, we know that you made bad bets. All right. This is a problem. We're going to bail you out. We're going to credit your account with reserves. We're going to give you all the reserves you need to make your books better. This is these trillions of dollars, but we don't want you to lend that out because in normal banking, which is, look how small the reserves are here. Might have to, you see how small these reserves are, mm -hmm. the portion of the balance sheet of the Fed. Remember the rest is paper notes, mm -hmm. most of it during this time, most of it. So we don't want you to lend that out because we know it's going to be massively hyperinflationary. So I'm going to pay you. This is that expense that Lynn's talking about. I'm going to start to pay you more uh, than the market. So you don't actually, you just, just keep those reserves. So effectively it's just a bailout. It's kicking the can down the road, but they know, I mean, it's been talked about for years. It's been 15 years now that it's been going on. They know that this is not going to be an easy unwinding of this problem. And so this is, this is what they're doing. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and I know I'm not the only one who thinks this because I've asked it a few sure. times and people have commented back. But did I, I answer your question? No, you did. You did. I, okay. Today, keep, keep asking. If, today if has been the has given me the clearest picture of the relationship between banks and central banks to a point I never fully understood before. A few things have been sliding into place. I was like, okay, and Lynn Alden's brilliant, but sometimes like having the chart has explained it yeah, to me. That's okay. great to hear. So I mean, like, this, it's, it's been a seeing it on pictures is, is, yeah, is much so easier. Now I get those relationships. Mm -hmm. um, Reverse repo. Okay. Do you firstly? Do you know? I'm going to ask you. Reverse repo always confused. And, yeah. Yeah. Let's, and let's, let me answer Danny's question it. first yeah, because yeah. we're still on. Uh, so this is good. I'm glad we're we're driving here with this. So discount rate. You see the discount rate. So here, this is really interesting. I just did a video on this, so it's, it's top of mind. The discount rate is in black. You see it. Yeah. And the Fed funds now they started to publish it. It's a weighted average uh, rate in the 50s. You see it's in the orange. You see that's below the discount rate. This is actually perfect Walter Badgett theory of banking. Again, Walter Badgett's not a fan of central bank. I'm not either. But he said, if you're going to have a central bank, lend at penalty interest to good collateral, to good banks, uh, and lend freely. If there's, a, if there's a crisis, that's the idea. Of course, the Federal Reserve doesn't know the interest rate, but this is like, you know, this is what he says. They actually adhered to this. And I wouldn't necessarily call this a penalty, but you can see it's the high end. Okay. Like if, if you're listening to this, you see a black line that's above and just little spikes down of the fed funds. And so now what is the fed funds? This is the rate that banks lend their reserves, the dark green shaded area to each other, uh, to each other. Okay. And why would they do that? Well, remember I told you the example of, uh, a, bi a, a billion pounds in checks going to you, whatever that bank, NetWest, a billion and one coming to me at Lloyd's. There's a one pound difference. It's not a good example because you don't need to borrow money for one. Yeah, but Sometimes you need to borrow money to cover that because you have reserve ratios, you have all these collateral ratios, all these other things. So at day end, if one bank is short on reserves, they will borrow them. And do they That's do that they do. from the repo market? Yes and no. Um, Yes and no. The Federal Reserve is now more involved in the repo market than it ever has. And I'll show you that. I got to go to the other chart. Uh, so let's not confuse it, though, because it's not that's not they've never traditionally been involved in the okay. repo market like that. The repo market, all it means basically is when you're going to have treasury securities trade like cash. That's what you need to think of the repo market. OK, so the treasury most of again, let's take the reserves out. 
This is, I'm talking about the asset side of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet when they buy assets. All this light green stuff, all right, you see it. It's, we, you, know, you, you see it on the screen, dear listeners, there's just a chart going from the lower left way to the upper right after the GFC. All of, uh, on the asset side is mostly securities. If uh, banks hold those securities, now we're not talking about the Fed, but the uh, other banks, they do the same thing, okay? They have securities as well that they buy. Sometimes they sell them to the Federal Reserve for uh, reserves. Sometimes they buy them from the Federal Reserve and then they give the Federal Reserve reserves and that, that destroys money. That's what's happening in the last couple of years before COVID and in the last year. Anyway, uh, I know it's hard to conceptualize all this stuff, but this is how the fiduciary system works. This is how bank, it's just banking works. And um, if a bank outside of the context of the Federal Reserve wanted to have more liquidity, they could, and, and particularly non-banks even, and this is actually another point I wanted to bring up, is uh, particularly money market funds, okay? And money market funds, what is that? That's just a stable coin. You gotta think of a stable coin. Mm -hmm. Stable coin is actually more like a Euro dollar because it's a, it's a money market fund, but it's outside of the control of the central bank. So that's what a Euro dollar means. It's a yeah. dollar-based account in France or the UK or whatever. There's Euro sterling. There's Euro euros, but they don't call it that because it'd be stupid. It has nothing to do <laughs> with Europe, by the way. The Euro dollar, it has nothing to do with Europe. It just means dollars outside of the US and it took the name Euro dollar because of post World War II, Americans were rebuilding Western Europe. Uh, so people wanted dollars. Anyway, uh, if banks want, and banks and really non-banks were the big players in Euro, in Euro dollar markets, primarily money market funds. If they wanted to get a little bit more interest, they could repo a security and they're actually reverse repoing. <laughs> That's confusing, but I, I'll, I'll pull up a chart to show you. Um, they're, they're actually the reverse repo. So money market funds have the asset, they have the liquidity and something like a hedge fund, it's not a bank. It could be a subsidiary of a bank or like a Lehman, which failed and they weren't really a bank, you know, investment bank, mm -hmm. investment bank, not a traditional bank. Uh, if they, they are the repo party. So that's what Euro dollars are. It's basically, you have securities, but you want a little bit more liquidity. So you wanna, I'm gonna collateralize it, I'm gonna put it as a loan and I'm gonna start trading it like cash. The physical security is not like they're wiring it back and forth, but they're trading the balance. The best way I think in the, in the Bitcoin land is to say like, imagine you have a, uh, an account at Kraken or Coinbase or who's your sponsor, Gemini. Gemini. Gemini, you got an account in Gemini. You want liquidity. Instead of putting more Bitcoin in or something, you're putting in US treasuries to your balance. So you are adding US treasuries and then you can do more stuff. You can short, you can go long, more, you can lever. It's just, it's more risk. And by the way, notice it's, it's pure rehab application of a treasury bond, by the way. It's, it's, it happens in banking all the time. Again, the free market would catch it better. It happens even more in the regulated system. Uh, basically, you have a treasury. Who pays interest on a treasury security? The United States Treasury. They got to pay. And who, what does that really mean? It means the taxpayer. So the taxpayer pays interest. What happens with the repo? The repo is, well, the repo parties get together, say a money market fund and a hedge fund. They say, let's do a repo. Uh, the money market fund takes the reverse position. They have the asset. The hedge fund takes the liability, the repo position. Again, I always count money from the liability side. The hedge fund has the liability. There's just, it's, it's a, it's a short term loan, but bottom line is it's, it's called a repo. They are doing it for liquidity purposes on the one side, get a little more interest from the money market fund. 
and for uh, also liquidity purposes on the liability side, the hedge fund wants to borrow. So it's lend. Not collateral kind of. Yeah, yeah it's, it's collateral. Short-term it's collateralized a short-term collateralized loan. Yeah. But the reason you do it is to take on more risk. Yeah. So again, the treasury pays interest. But then you repo that treasury further into the market. Someone else is now paying interest on top of it. Hmm. So the original, the repo party actually still is usually going to be the hedge fund. They'll have the security. They have securities to repo. They say, hey, I got a security. Let me repo it. So they still get some interest from the treasury, but then they got to pay more to the money market fund. Okay, so That's when there, how it works. So when there was a crisis in the repo market and the government was stepping in, why? Because... What what were they fixing? What, well, what, you know, if, yeah, if that was no, right here. Uh, if there's no liquidity, who? Yeah, that who was need, right here. Yeah, who needed the liquidity? Um, it, it wasn't res, uh, it, reserves. Actually, went up here a little bit, but um, bottom line is the repo market. The yield spiked, so it showed you that something was wrong. So you can see that also. Right, this was. Oh no, this isn't it. I'm not zooming in the right spot. It was September of 2019. It's right here. You don't see much change in reserves here. Let me let me pull up a, a chart with repos to show you. Uh, what is this website? Is this, this yours? Is, this is my stuff. Yeah, it's all local. Uh, it's I, this is what I built for. Is it all from APIs, or do you manually? It's a local data? API, but it's also local collection of data and everything else. Does anyone so, else have access, or just you? Just me. You should sell this. I thought about it. Uh, originally, I was going to do an app and stuff like that, but then you know you get into licensing. You talk about data collection and all this stuff. So I settled on education for now purposes. Uh, let's see. Maybe you can help me with it. I would, dude. I'd buy a subscription to this tomorrow. <laughs> it's better than Bloomberg. Huh? Yeah. It's, no, it's yeah, but yeah. Th- this is useful. I mean, we would use this, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, hundred percent. You should. Yeah. Su- you should create subscriptions to this. We can we can talk about it. I, I got to deal with licensing and all this, and I've I, I, I don't have I have limited resources here, so it's like it's mostly a personal license and what What's endeavor. The license? Um, well, you got to license this. This is High Charts. It's great software, by the yeah. way. It's it's uh, kind of open source, but you'd have to license it if you want to do more than just education. And okay. um, and then there's the data feeds themselves. They get complicated. Like there are plenty of central bank sites, which I do do as well. They're generally open. But you know, like if you want to get the price of gold and you want to resell that, you got to license that and all these other things. So it's yeah. it's annoying. I've never look. I've never fully explored it. I, I started to with the app, but then I, I ditched it for this idea. But look, man, this is I, I am. I, I can say I'm proud of it. This is what I'm doing. My daily stuff. My my pumping now for this show. Yeah. Uh, my my marketing. I, I do the, I do daily shows now on this. I try to keep it more simple. We don't do like hour long shows. It's like. 10, 10, 20 minutes. I'm trying to get it down to 10 minutes. Tell people where to go for that. Uh, my, uh, so the podcast, it's always been called Crypto Voices. It's still called that, but on YouTube, I've had this brand now for a couple of years. It's Porkopolis is named after my hometown, Cincinnati. It was called that in the 1800s. Love you can tell it. I like some history stuff. So Porkopolis Economics, it's the same YouTube channel. You can find it there. So uh, here is the repo. I want to get to your question about why that spiked, but let's just look at it really quick. Here's total money supply. And here is repos. Uh, let's take off total money supply so you can see it. This is a liability of the Fed's balance sheet. This is another huge one. It's called the reverse repurchase facility. This is the Federal Reserve now getting involved, to your question, in the repo market. They never really were before. They did, they did repo. Like you can see, it goes back here. And this is the, remember, to count money, you count the liability side of any bank. It doesn't matter if it's a central bank. They have liabilities and notes and reserves or liability them, or a commercial bank. Liabilities would be deposits for them, and they used to be banknotes, but that's now forbade. Like you know, we talked about this. I think in 
I think it was with you, Scotland, again, free banking tradition, I think still the banks of Scotland in the UK issue different pound notes with different pictures. Yeah. Yeah, they do. That goes back to their tradition of free banking, which is cool. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I made the joke. I was like, yeah, those 20 pound notes are worth 19 pounds. And this guy's (laughs) on YouTube. He's like, what are you fucking on about, you idiot? (laughs) No, it's just nobody wants one. You know, I've got up there, I can show you, I think I've got a Northern Irish 10 pound note. Mm. Nobody likes them though. They just, when you go into a shop, they're like, the, oh, the what the fuck is this? shopkeepers get suspicious. Yeah, yeah, they're like, what is this shit? This goes back to, all right, this is even a better thing. Oh, I just took this chart off. I get to get the discount rate on both things. The etymology of the discount rate is different than even being the lender of last resort. Why the name, the discount rate? This goes back to the free banking that I was telling you about in, in Europe, but also in China, in, in, uh, in the Muslim world. I'm sure it looked like this. I haven't done much research there. But the name, the etymology of the word discount, it literally comes from... You're trying to clear all these balances, right? You got checks going into one bank, checks going into another. They get together at some point. Sometimes they get together at a correspondent bank. Sometimes they'll actually ship coin. The banks are always going to have wholesale rates. They will clear all of these face values of checks, bills of exchange, which again, bills of exchange is actually more popular too. Just think of it as a check that's meant to be out of town, an out of town check. And you don't necessarily need to be a bank to use it. Let's not worry about too much. So bills of exchange and checks and eventually banknotes. When you're going to clear this stuff, finally, and, and eventually at the central bank, but even before that, when there was no central bank, and this is actually the nature of free banking as well, would you, let's say you come into me in my bank, I'm in Genoa or something, and you come into me from Florence, and you got a check, and it's like 100 Florentines, Flor- Florin or whatever, I don't know, there's like 50 different denominations. Florin was actually the ounce of gold, but there's like, All right. there's like 50 different denominations. Anyway, let's say we want 100 grams, 100 grains, grams would be too much. Uh, uh, 300 silver us used to be on i'm, I'm throwing out way too many facts that the, the, <laughs> the us used to be on a silver standard actually to start it was 375 grains of silver was a dollar that's actually was the definition of dollar it's about 80 percent of an ounce anyway let's say 100 grains 100 grains of uh, gold you have a check and it's from the bank in florence i'm in general right you're a retail customer you're a merchant but you know i know that you're good for it like it's a check is good but what what are my choices the best choice is that I give you an account in my bank. Great. Because then I got the check. And if I ever want to get the gold, I'm safer. Like I'm not, it's, it's better than me giving you gold. I just give you an account. I may even give you a full value discount for that check, not discount, full value. I just gave away the word. Uh, but say I want to give you gold. Am I going to give you the full value? A hundred grains of gold for that check? No, because definitely not. Because there's risk. This is the definition of banking. And actually, if you read Sidney Homer, The History of Interest Rates, all of the early rates are annualized interpretations of the discount rate. You can decide an interest rate uh, from the discount. Right. So that's a fascinating thing as well. So the, the problem, discount rate is, yeah. So the problem with central banks is they're trying to eliminate risk. Yeah. So this was the thing. They actually said, even though it's called the discount window, everything went to par with central banking. Federal Reserve notes, checks. In the US, the discounts actually had three terms. It all means the same thing. Checks were remittances. You might have heard these terms. Hmm. Checks were remittances. Bills of exchange were called domestic exchange rates. Again, it's just a thing about it as a long distance check. And banknotes themselves, which we know, we understand what they are, the pieces of paper, that was called the discount. So all of them meant the same thing, but the history of that has to do with managing risk. Like this is what a bank does is, look, I, I might believe that I, I might have full faith that like, this is from that bank, but, and, and it's not like, it's not such an arbitrary decision. Like there's, there's lots of trade. They know like, okay, you're, it also has a function of distance. Like they know you're, you know, hundred miles away, not so bad. If you want to, if I, as, as a bank in general, want to actually get coin for this hundred grain check, 
there is some risk. I mean, there's travel risk, uh, everything. And, and there might be risk that it's a fraudulent check as well. So that's, that's risk too. So why not let uh, Silicon Valley Bank fail? It's because it's a central bank and they never want to let anything fail. They should. They should? Absolutely, they should have. 100%. And if they let them fail, yes. I mean, there's political reasons as well because there's impact on... Yeah, we're yeah, long down the road from anything failing. I mean, 2008 has shown us long-term capital management in the 90s. We're long down the road from... They did let Lehman fail, interestingly. Yeah, but if they'd have let Silicon Valley Bank fail, it's not like Silicon Valley, Valley Bank failed with zero assets. Their assets were actually valued at par, but it was just because they were long duration. Yeah, so that's right. So they that's like, absolutely right. So they still could have, they still could, so, so depositors still could have got their money back. Mm. So why not just let it fail? They don't want to let stuff fail. Otherwise, if they did... Because the system is a, it's yeah, a, con, the, it's a all, confidence game because they're, they're, that they're managing. But they came in because of failures, and therefore their mandate is exactly. to stop failures. And they always say that they're, this is their time immemorial reason. And again, like I said at the beginning of the show, it's not just banking. They come into any industry with the... It's the do-gooders on one side, as Milton Friedman said, the, 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 the unholy alliance of the do-gooders and the special interests on the other. It, it's absolutely... If you can get a little bit more monopoly, a little bit more monopolistic privilege come in as, you know, a bank, a, a, a systemically important bank coming in to take over SVB, SVB's assets. That's a much better deal for the, S, the SIBs, the systemically important banks, rather than SVB. Let SVB, so the choice is not to let SVB, SVB fail or not, it's to give more power to the SIBs, to the SIBs. So it's, okay, which one of your mates are you going to give this bank to? Yeah, and that's not, I mean, it's not a conspiracy. Like, that. that is obvious that this is what, that's the history of central banking. That's a huge part of it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because, like, again, I, I like this stuff. I like studying it, talking about the markets, but I still view the deepest depths of Dante's Inferno. It's not anything to do with fractional reserve banking or the way, I was. It's not fractional reserve banking, it's just banking. This is how banking works. It's always, it's a discount rate. There's no mysterious vault that, you know, a middle-class peasant, nothing against middle-class peasants in the Florentine times, but, you know, there's no mysterious vault that they have one coin that they're really looking for. It's the merchants themselves. So I'm a big fan of banking history. Look at that and then look who controls it. That's, that'll tell you things. But the deepest depths of the problem is two things, legal tender, and then the, the control of credit itself, the central bank itself, which controls interest rates. If you didn't have those two things, you would have freedom, but we don't have them. And we, again, I freely admit, free banking has failed at the hands of the state. It has failed, it's taken over. So this is why we need Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a new type of base money, which is great. You have it or you don't, but don't confuse Bitcoin with, by the way, any other account here, M1, M2, or M3. By the way, M3 still exists. I recalculated here. It's not, this is a little plug. Explain to people M1, M2, sure, M3. Sure. So just to be clear, everything in the blue here is base money. We looked at it before. M0, bank reserve, also it's reverse repo. I didn't tell you exactly. It's, it's Fed getting involved in the repo market. It's a liability. So state money, as I have the title here, state versus bank money. Bitcoin is analogous. I'm not saying Bitcoin is the same thing, but Bitcoin is economically, legally, accounting-wise analogous to base money. You either have it or you don't. It's the, it's the core of the system. You can't go deeper. If Lloyd's and Nat West, right, mm -hmm. want to settle, they're going to settle in bank reserves. They don't go to a deeper level of money. So when I'm talking about money, base this money. is base money. Yeah. That's why I'm always on it. And Bitcoin is analogous to that. You can't settle any level deeper than an on-chain UTXO. You yeah. just cannot do it. This is a Coinbase account in green. This is a Kraken account. This is a Gemini account. This is a bank account. Everything that is in green 
It's an account with some fiduciary. So mm-hmm. I get it. that's just how it works. Um, obviously, I don't manage it well. <laughs> you see, it's grown like crazy. Uh, okay, so M1, M2, and 3. M1 is basically demand deposits, uh, only demand deposits. Uh, it also includes M0, which a lot of people confuse M0 with the monetary base. M0 is properly defined as just the, the cash, cash and coin that is not in the vaults of banks. So in it's circulation. under people's mattresses, in grocery store tills, in people's wallets. And they want to... And, and that's a lot of money, by the yeah. way. That's a lot of money. And by the way, this is also another reason why I'm not such, so fearful of CBDCs, even though CBDCs are an Orwellian hellscape. Uh, and I'm actually doing a CBDC tracker, by the way, with uh, Janine from the Bitcoin, this month in Bitcoin privacy newsletter. Uh, Nick Anthony from Cato Institute. We're doing the... Love Bit- Janine. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a Bitcoin, or a, uh, excuse me, a CBDC tracker. We're going to try to, you know, show a little Bitcoin history as well. Uh, for the Human Rights Foundation. So in Bitcoin world, would you only have base money and B1? I don't think so. That's my point of all this, is I, I think that you will have fiduciary media. Like like I said earlier, it, there's nothing stopping me from lending you a Bitcoin. Okay, so you'd have, you'd and have you three lending levels. Danny, and yeah. Danny lo- lending Emma or anybody else. Yeah, okay. Uh, Lightning Network, is that still base? That's a great question. Uh, Lightning Network's awesome. Absolutely needs to be used as much as possible. It's not used so much now, uh, like gross number wise, but it's it's actually an interesting economic question. Is that like B0? It's a very good question. Uh, you asked the good questions. I, I don't think there's an economic uh, term for it. Peter Todd, I, I use this quote all the time in my presentations. Peter Todd, like way back in 2018, called it a middle ground state. I kind of like that because it's, you know, with this stuff in green, which dear listeners, just like the highest money supply, it's huge. Um, this is the bank money. Lightning is obviously not like that, right? Because it's it's locked base money. Yeah, that, that's the key with Lightning. It is locked base money. That whatever these things we want to call. I mean, I've seen different wallets call them different things. By the way, you know, Lightning Bitcoin or whatever. Mm. But um, the Bitcoin that is trading on Lightning, it's not quite a claim, but it's also not quite under your control, like base money Bitcoin. So but this is what Peter it's still brought, a bearer instrument. Uh, yeah, but in a different environment than base money Bitcoin. So Peter, Peter Todd calls it a middle ground state. I like that definition. Um, uh, I'm, I'm open to more suggestions there. But I, I can, I can see the argument that it's still just base money. I think that there's, he, he's said as well, I mean, other people have said this, like there's still, there's risk on the lightning network. It's a different type of well, risk. I was going to say, but the, the risk is the, the, where we are in the roadmap, it's still considered like yeah, yeah. We're still considered early. Yeah. They're still figuring things out. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's potential um, uh, attacks on the Lightning Network. Yeah. There's potential flaws. So that that's like the risk that it can get stolen. Yeah. So hold, hold, a, hold on, hold it's on. A, it's a philosophical one too, hmm. right? Because it's like when you're. Ta- I'm not going to go further. You can. I, I'm just saying. Um, we're still on this topic. Yeah. Like if you're, if you really want to get down to what is a Bitcoin, I mean, I think the on-chain UTXO that you hold and you validate specifically with your node where no other state can, yeah. can take it from you. I, I think that's a different level of Bitcoin than a lightning. But uh, look, I'm not in a lightning node or lightning. Tra- look, I, I'm going to be very clear. I love anything that happens with Bitcoin, Fediment, lightning. <sighs> it's awesome. Um, I'm just saying there's some differences there and I want to see this chart yeah. as a Bitcoin chart, Bitcoin based money, yeah. 
Lightning. I'm working on it. Coinbase. Yeah, because that's the thing. The, the, none of these exchanges, no matter what they say, by the way, are 100% reserve. They're always like, the, first of all, well, first of all, they trade shit coins. So that's another thing you need to understand. That's yeah. why exchanges are different than a bank. A bank would lend those deposits further. And it'd be very clear, even though a lot of people like to say it's not clear, it's fraudulent. No, it was very clear. The merchants themselves wanted to do this all the way from the beginning of the banking. So just to repeat that. Um, so exchanges are unique right now. And this is a free market thing, right? Exchanges are unique in Bitcoin because they can trade shit coins. They can make revenue from shit coin trading, which is a new revenue model that like banks didn't have before. Before it was just interest. And it's, Jesse Powell said- like Forex trading. Yeah, but Jesse Powell said as much. He's like, look, I don't really want your Bitcoin. It's a liability for me because he's being principled about it right now. He could absolutely lend it out. I mean, of course, there's no like, he could do it. There's nothing stopping him. He could do it. But because of the ethos of Bitcoin, exchanges have not, the good ones, let's say, <laughs> haven't chosen to not do that. We know the bad ones. We know things have failed. Legally, and not could they do it? Well, that's the thing. There's no, what regulation is there anyway? I mean, you know, if it was SBF's legislation, he'd be, he'd be the one to lever it up more than anybody else. Fuck my God. Yeah. But uh, it's not, that's not, it's open questions still. And this is another thing why, again, free banking don't like just poo poo it because it's, it was overtaken eventually by state banking. Bitcoin is a very different thing than gold, right? Yeah. I, I didn't finish on gold money. Just one more thing. Then we can, wherever you want to go or end the show, or whatever. I know we're going a little bit long. Uh, with gold, you would think, that more people would want gold. And this, this goes way back to the custodia question we didn't answer. Um, did you know that all of the, I, I used to track this with the basement, I haven't done it in a couple quarters. All of the transparent gold and silver holdings in the world, that is every ETF, every, like a gold money, everywhere it's transparently, they have the gold, they're auditing it twice a quarter, uh, big doors, vaults, like you know the gold is there. 100% reserve gold vaults. Peter Schiff type gold. All of the transparent gold and silver vaults in the world, the Perth Mint, all that stuff, it's not even a fraction of Bitcoin's market cap. It might, I don't, I don't remember the exact number. You know, Bitcoin is now, it's over 500 billion, right? Yeah. We're not even close there. Now, that doesn't mean there's still about 5 trillion in bullion. Like there's bullion, there's 5 trillion in jewelry, 5 trillion in bullion. So uh, the LBMA is very not transparent organization. There's old gold holdings there. I'm not including that. I'm saying transparent gold holdings, like ETFs, things that you can count up physically, the ounces. It's smaller than Bitcoin's market part, cap Part right of now. the markets. Right, right. Yeah. Part of the transparent tradable markets. Bitcoin is way surpassed that long ago. So this is why Bitcoin is different and better and why I think Bitcoin destroys any of the risk of gold. And I give presentations on this all the time. I talked about it at Honey Badger last time. If you were a gold bug in the 70s, you'd be like, it's game on. We are going to win. Gold is going to 850 bucks an ounce from 35 bucks an ounce during the stagflation of the 70s. Americans are trading gold again. Property rights are back. It is game on for gold. And then what happened? Gold hit 850 bucks an ounce in 1980. Paul Volcker pricked the bubble. I'm, I don't have the interest rates slide up again. Uh, interest rates crushed the gold market. And also they arguably are selling more gold than they own. But that's another thing. That's a GATA conspiratorial question. But anyway, Central banks hold one-fifth of the world's gold. They control gold. This brings me back to the custodia question. I think it's great. What custodia is doing, she should do it. She should fight for her legal right to have a full reserve bank, even a bail, a bailment is what it's called, right? When you actually, you know that it's audited, you know that you're not lending it out. Do it. It's great. Historically, that's not what free banking is. It's never developed that way, but do it. The risk, though, of that is the same for the gold market. The risk of that of, of uh, the, the risk we are facing there. Like, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily look at it as a win. Like, if you're a Bitcoiner, 
you know, anywhere in the world. And, and Caitlin Long gets her master account. Again, I love her. I, I, I really support what she's doing. Like I said, she's been on the show. I want to make very, very clear. I know I'm, I'm trying to be nuanced here, but if, if, if Custodia gets a master account, like that's a short-term win for Bitcoin. It's going to help with adoption. But that road, we've seen that road always. It leads to centralized control. It happened with gold. It happened even with silver societies. I mean, any, any society. Uh, centralization is not necessarily, mm. I mean, it's definitely not, it's definitely not the good thing in the long term. Maybe in the short term, gets people more involved and everything. So this is why you always have to have the ability to withdraw and presumably, well, not presumably, we know that you would be able to do that with a custodial type setup. But at what point does that get turned off? At what point does Caitlin Long retire from the board 20 years down the line after that? Maybe a crisis occurs. Maybe we're going to need to turn off withdrawals for a week. Like this is why free banking doesn't work in a regulated sense. So I'm, I'm all, I am specifically talking about free banking in a no central bank, no regulation society. Yep. I know that it's failed. Fiat has always taken it over. But I think with Bitcoin, we absolutely have a chance to, you know, it's that whack-a-mole where it can be everywhere. And I'm, I'm not talking about a regulated structure. I'm just talking about it's really what exchanges are right now. Why do we have exchanges? It's, it's the easiest way to trade Bitcoin. Some people yep. leave the Bitcoin on, some people not. We got to educate, do all that. But I, I, one more thing on this point. I really liked, uh, I watched Sergey's interview. I like Sergey in general. Yeah, I like Sergey. He, he made this point many times. He's like, at what point are we going to see this Bitcoin standard emerge? I, I, I believe it's going to happen. This is what I'm trying to prepare for. You're trying to prepare for. We're trying to educate on. But, you know, I, is, is, is there going to be any loans? Are we not going to make loans anymore? Uh, you know, these are the times of questions. We that debated it yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're like, of course you're still going to lend each other money. I just, I just demonstrated how easy yeah. it is to make a loan. It's, you, it's impossibly easy to make a loan. you need credit. I agree with you. To I do things. You. I needed credit to buy this house. I needed credit to start my first business. I needed it. It yeah. would not have happened. Yeah. And like that credit might be different. Like my first house, I went to my dad. I borrowed 5,000 pounds. Mm. And so that wasn't a bank loan, but it was still credit. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's peer-to-peer credit. Maybe it's between your friends, but you're always going to have credit. 100% agree. I got one more point. I don't know if you guys got anything else. Well, the other thing we want to do with CBDCs, but I think look, we've uh, we're two, two hours, hours ten. 10 we did, we yeah, the, I think we're just, we're just going to have to revisit that again. Are you going to be a honey badger? Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Well, that's, that's my neighborhood. We'll do it then. Good. Let, let, last. Are you going to be a honey badger? When's that? <laughs> September. I already spoke to you about September, the other October. Day. Yeah. Uh, just one it's final pre- point. Pre-Australia, that's where I'm going before Australia. Imagine that, our first Australia trip, you have to fly to Latvia to pick me up. That would really annoy me. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. Let's go. I don't know how you do it, Danny. I really don't, but it's impressive. Um, He's young, that's why. Actually, I got to go back to the... Uh, where's TMS? Do you see TMS? There it is. So I, I was on the chart. Just imagine, remember that interest rates were 20%. This is another thing where the full reservists, they don't understand that le- legislation can be damning. It's just not necessarily where you want to look. Uh, really quick. You see this line? This is the sacred demand deposit. This is what the full reserves say. We all need full reserves. Even though the fungibility of money has never worked this way, the sacred demand deposit, this is a percent of total money. Where has it been going from the 60s to the eve of the financial crisis? Down. And what is the percentage on the eve of the financial crisis? Uh, you see, it's the last one on the tooltip there. 6.4% is the that's the, even the full reservists who really want to make a big deal about all this stuff, they will admit like 
lending money is fine, but it should be a savings account, a time deposit, something where it's clear that it's an interest. They don't, you know, but the demand deposit, that's some, something sacred about that. How do you explain the global financial crisis if the demand deposit was, as a percentage of total money, 44% in the 60s? And on the eve of the financial crisis, let's not worry about what happened after that's money printing, but on the eve of the financial crisis, it was 6% of the total money supply. Well, you remember the, I, I don't have these charts mixed, but you remember in 1980, the interest rates were 20%. There was another type of legislation that was massively influencing bank deposits at that time. It's called Regulation Q. It's still in effect. There are limits that the government sets on the charging of interest. It goes back to our interest discussion before, which is totally bad. It's not market. On demand deposits, on savings accounts, and on time deposits. They put limits on how much banks could, uh, could give, could give even to their deposit holders, uh, how much they could uh, pay. They put limits. And so what happened was you actually had, let me just put these two money supplies here. Um, what happened is you got away from M1, you see how small it is, and you got into M2 and M3. I didn't finish the full, there are many different things, but the big thing there is money market funds. And money market funds were a non-bank entity that started precisely at this time in the 80s because people wanted the interest. They saw how much banks were getting in interest, 15%, but they couldn't get that. Like depositors were limited. Regulation Q, they were limited to like five, five, five and a half percent for the demand deposits. So they went into money market funds. And lo and behold, what happens, you know, not even 20, well, 20 some years later, Blythe Masters and the rest of the financial engineering, mortgage-backed securities purchased by money market funds. So is that like the blurring of mortgage-backed securities being used like money? Yeah, it's, it's a different type of money. It's like, think of a stable coin. It's, it's, uh, it's a just, it's, it's what, what do we say about the church, right? The church said this about, um, about their lenders, that they always find a way to get around the rules. And that's, they do that the best in banking. <laughs> they have their rules and they'll get away and they'll probably get around the rules with very unfavorable consequences that might not even be seen for decades. And the money market fund market, Lehman, money market fund holder, big time for their uh, uh, depositors, a lot of money market funds, uh, they had these mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, a lot of problems and they failed or had to be bailed out. Uh, Matt, amazing, unbelievable. We could have say a whole fucking day doing this, but I love this because uh, I've learned something today. Uh, part, I kind of had a, something click into place what I didn't really understand about the relationship between banks and central banks. I did want to do, um, uh, I did want to do, um, CBDCs with you, but yeah. like we can't do it. But look, we'll be at we'll be at Honey Badger. We'll do it there. We'll Absolutely. find the time. Where do you want to send people again? Tell them where to go. Pork Bless Economics is the YouTube uh, on Spotify. You can still see the videos. That's still the Crypto Voices podcast. My branding's not exactly uh, completely thought, thought thought through, but uh, both brands I'm very happy with and uh, been working for a long time on it. So if I can help you guys educate yourselves on money, and again, I think it's about the history just as much as anything. I think that's uh, the most interesting thing. So I do some dailies like this uh, on YouTube. Go check them out. That was amazing. Absolutely love that. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, guys. Man. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. All right. What do you think of that? How good is Matthew? Absolutely love talking to Matt. I can have him on the show anytime. His understanding and his grasp of history with relation to banking is incredible. Love him. And listen, I know we covered Russia, Ukraine, and I know this can be a polarizing subject. And I know you might not agree with it, or you might agree with me. Look, this is what the show's for. We're here to discuss things, to get it on the table. 
Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I'm off now. I'm off to do WBD live in Bedford. I've got 150 people in here in Bedford here to talk about Bitcoin and to come and watch football tomorrow. It's amazing. I feel absolutely blessed. All right. I will see you all next week.